you know, like when I was in year situation. three and I accidentally like created life out of clay yeah. <laughs> and it would scream and it would scream and exactly. had to bury it under a mound of lead and it's still there in Adelaide. <laughs> Flux. And I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're discussing Feet of Clay, or Muddling Threes and Murders. And our guest is weather presenter, meteorologist and science communicator, Nate Byrne. Welcome, Nate. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Liz. Uh, very good afternoon to you. Yes, I feel like I want to ask you, what's the weather like in Ankh-Morpork today? Oh, um, I'm tipping actually that, uh, where are we right now? Um, spring is about to poke summer in the back or something and shift it on and there's some sort of awful fetid fog uh probably it's true this is it feels like this is the most weather has played a part in a discworld novel i could not have been more delighted picking up this book again (laughs) and just reading those first few pages and just thinking ah this is right up my alley uh but i tell you what a secret weather presenter well, it's, it's something we don't normally tell people, so please don't share this with a wider audience. Okay. But um, if all else fails, partly cloudy, chance <laughs> of a shower. <laughs> <laughs> Just like you can't really go wrong with that. Exactly. Uh, and then if I mean, you're a big Discworld fan. I am. Um, which Liz discovered when you did a gig together. Yeah, mm. I, I just <laughs> she randomly mentioned, like, oh, I, I do a podcast. Yeah, about Terry Pratchett. And then afterwards you were like, oh, I'm a bit of a fan. Yeah, a bit of a massive fan. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I started out actually, I think, the wrong way around. I I think I started with a book probably when I was just a little bit too young mm. to really, like, I appreciate the comedy and, and, and got a little bit lost. But it was the video game. Oh, yeah. I think that got me, I think, just at the right time, probably in, in my fairly early teenage years. And then from there, it was uh, Small Gods and then uh, Color of Magic and... Off I went through the entire library. Yeah, nice. Yeah, that game, I think, got a few people in. It, it's very good. Like, it, it sort of rehashes a few plots from the books, but remixes them into something new and adds a bunch of puzzles. And, mm. and yeah, it's great. One of the problems I've got, though, is now all of those voices are in my head. Oh, no. Yeah, and I can't <laughs> get rid of it. Like, death, I know exactly what death sounds like. And it's that kind of cool, echoey, you know, yeah, I, I can't, it, it literally can't be done. But, um, yeah, so it, I think it ruined me in, in a small way, but uh, in a great way because it introduced me to the Discworld. Yeah, um, and that means also Rincewind always sounds like Eric Idle to you. Yes, yes, he does. I had not connected that, and that is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it, it definitely is. Um, it leaves a few a few problems though when it comes to some of some of the smaller characters because then when you read them, uh, I, I found a bit of a disconnect from time to time. But oh, that's all right. I had a second rediscovery when mm. I was in the Navy. Uh, I was posted in Sydney to HMAS Watson. It's, it's base in Sydney. And all of my friends had been posted away. It was during the kind of training cycle and most people went to either Darwin or Cairns to go to small boats. But I happened to be on the one 
uh, on, on some of the small boats out of Sydney. Um, and so I found myself living on base alone, which is kind of dull and boring and uh, in your own little tiny shoebox of a room. And I, I'd pop down to the shops and go to the video store because that was still a thing back then uh, and grab a couple of videos and then watch them chew through them. And then one time I was down at the book shop, I just ducked my head in and I saw a Pratchett and it was this, uh, you, you know, the fancy, it's the one I've got now with that black cover, mm. or, you know, not the traditional, yeah. Elegant ones. Yeah, the, which actually I want to come back to because uh, it turns out it's awful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and they were like, oh, I don't know, what, 20 bucks a pop or something? So I started buying one every time I'd go down the shops. So I have recollected for myself all of the Pratchett's and, and, and rediscovered them all uh, awesome. Yeah, in my 20s, which was great. Nice. Hmm? Oh, well, look, you know, they are worth a reread, or at least we certainly hope so, because <laughs> that's what we're doing. Well, I think now you've got me here, I'm going to be doing it again in my 30s, because uh, I tell you what, this is, I have, I've read this one for this episode, but uh, I'm not done. I've got to go back now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a good, this is a good one, I think, to reintroduce you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we chose to start with Men at Arms, like a lot of the watch books, I feel, really draw you in. This um, one, I was really surprised on reread by how much I actually remembered because the other ones I generally remembered themes or the maybe who's going to be the murderer or the general sort of arc of it. This one, I was like, oh, this quote's coming up and then now this quote's coming up and then this character's going to be introduced. And it was one, I think, that clicked with me quite a lot. And I think it's because it had a lot of the characters I really liked and it's also just a really good murder mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, it's got all it's got all of the tropes as all of the watch novels do, right? But uh, I think for me it was the cheery... Mm. sort of storyline that really pulled me along. I was like, oh, I remember. I remember. I remember what's happening next. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Uh, we should get into it, I feel like, because, guys, I don't know about you, but I'm super excited to talk about this one. Me too. Uh, too. So we should begin our discussion of Feet of Clay with reading the blurb. A Discworld how-done-it. Who's murdering harmless old men? Who's poisoning the patrician? As autumn fogs hold Ankh-Morpork in their grip, the City Watch have to track down a murderer who can't be seen. Maybe the golems know something, but the solemn men of clay who work all day and night and are never any trouble to anyone have started to commit suicide. It's not as if the Watch hasn't got problems of its own. There's a werewolf suffering from pre-lunar tension, Corporal Nobs is hobnobbing with the Nobs, and there's something really strange about the new dwarf recruit, especially his earrings and eyeshadow. Who can you trust when there are mobs on the streets and plotters in the dark and all the clues point the wrong way? In the gloom of the night, Watch Commander Sir Samuel Vimes finds that the truth might not be out there at all. It may be in amongst the words in the head. A chilling tale of poison and pottery. They, they really went in for long gloves. <laughs> Did you mean gloom of night or glom of knit? Yeah, uh, that's... <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, Either rain or snow, or <laughs> glum of knit. <laughs> yeah, which already has appeared by this time in the series because we discovered that, didn't we? I think it was in Guards, Guards, like mm. talk about it before it even turns up in Going Postal. Um, there's so many things going on in this book. There's all these little story strands and plot sequences and different things happening. They all, mostly, they all come together, although we'll talk about that some more. There's A through Z plots. Yeah, yeah. it's true. But it all starts, as so many Terry Pratchett books do, with a murder. Is somebody dying? Well, is it? Or is it um, with it's a sale? sale. Yeah. Oh, it's the sale. Like a no, you're right. Before that. Fire sale in some way. <laughs> <laughs> I got ahead of myself. But it doesn't It doesn't take long. Like, well, it, it's, a, it's a murder in waiting, you could yeah. say, in a way. Well, true. Soon to be murder. It's but like an Agatha Christie book, you know, like the body is coming. <laughs> but you're right. Before we get to the murder uh, is the sale of the golem by another golem 
which is which freaks out our buyer who we don't know who it is at the start until they get to thirty dollars then they're like that's cool I'm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right yeah 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 caution I, to the wind I have to admit like so you were saying you remember this one really well Liz mm. there were a lot of things that I didn't remember and that made it a very pleasant surprise because it is a mystery that there were things that I didn't remember about it uh, and we'll get to some of them later on but one of them was I was like it seems weird that he's not naming this you know, business person who's buying this golem. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, it, later on the book becomes obvious why, because it's mm. got to be a mystery. But it's, yeah, I, I like this sequence. There's a lot of carry on. Yeah. Um, now, we've all got different editions of the book. I'm interested to know what the text of yeah. the, the golems looks like, because mine's, mine's the first edition. So, this is, this is during the period when I was working at a bookshop. So, I was buying them when they came out. And it's got this kind of slightly... Um, Hebrew style script, like it is, it is English letters, but they're in that sort of slightly wobbly um, Hebrew-like script in mine. So my paperback one of yours, the Kid B cover, has the same font, I think, okay. but small. But then the newest one, like the new hardback ones, has like just a a bold, big bold sort yeah. of. Yeah, that's what I put in the Kogi. That's what, yeah, yours look the same. Okay, so that's mm. interesting. I don't know. I wonder. Um, like it's just a publishing decision, I guess. But I, it's, it's I different voices, though. It does give it a different voice, even though I mean the golems don't speak; they they communicate by writing on a slate. Um, well, initially, mm. let's not get ahead of ourselves. Hmm. Which golem do you reckon is selling? The I reckon other it's Dorful. Yeah, that's my assumption. Yeah, for sure. Because he don't, he doesn't introduce himself by name, but yeah, Dorful's got leadership skills. He does, even though that's strange, like in the context that they've got. So yeah, I just want to quickly point out that. The the haggling scene was very Python esque. It was kind of like that one from Is it Life of Brian where they're haggling, oh, yeah. where he's not haggling over the price of a gourd. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's yeah, like, yeah. Oh, you got to do this. So yeah, I do like that. Then we've got one of those sort of Discord in space sequences, Liz. But it's quite short. But the purpose of it is to show that some time has passed. But how much time? I'd say not long, like a couple of weeks, mm. perhaps. Yeah, I guess so. It's I don't a- know because we get through that bit where you know. Autumn's nudging out, winter's nudging out, spring, right? The, mm. Or spring by summer, summer prodded in the back by autumn. So I wondered if that was maybe, uh, it might just be a general description or it might be that passage of time. Yeah. Well, I get, because I mean, it's, we'll, I will come back to this. I don't want to get too hung up on something so early on the book. Like this is literally three pages into my edition. Yeah. But, um, but, but it, after he's been, after the golem has been sold off, like it seems like word's got to get around that he's there before any of the rest of the plot can happen. But then that means there's this weird time gap between when he's made and sold and the first murder happens. It's like two and a bit seasons, perhaps? Maybe. Mm. Well, I don't want to give anything away, but uh, we learn by the end that he's managed to, you know, do a whole lot of work that would have taken at least some amount of time. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Torn through all sorts of uh, resources. Yeah. Um, and uh, given someone enough time to lay off a whole bunch of people. So, yeah, mm. may- maybe maybe at least months. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, look, you know, don't get, again, don't you get too hung up on no. this, listeners, either. But if you have any suggestions on this or any of the other questions that I'm going to pose about my questions about the <laughs> mystery itself, Please do tweet them to us. Um, you can use the hashtag for this episode, which is Pratchat24. But then, yeah, we get to the murder pretty quickly hmm. of Father... Now, how do we pronounce his name? Oh, I was going to ask you because something in my in my reading, I said Tibblecheck. Mm. I don't know why I put the ch in there, but... No, that sounds right. Like, because it sounds like it's a Polish name or... Yeah. A, um, yeah, I was having a check as well. So, yeah. 
Yeah. I was saying Tubalcheck. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Um, right. He's, yeah. he's, quite, he's pretty close. He's interesting because he's one of those figures who's, who looms quite large through the book. Like they're always talking about him and referring back to his death, but you never really find out much about him, like what he does or or, or who he is, mm. um, except that, you know, Carrot says that he was quite nice and, and you're like, oh, okay. Carrot <laughs> thinks everyone's quite nice. Yeah, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Look, he, he's obviously some sort of really powerful priest though because mm. he's he's got the ability to make a golem, which is yes. I, I get the feeling not something that's just, just easily done, right? Yeah, well, you'd think not. I mean, there's I th- there's not a lot of information about the process. At one point, they do kind of describe it as being, you know, you just need some clay and some words. But I'm like, no, surely there's more to it than that, or mm. anyone could make one. It could be he's a bit of a renegade, like a well-read renegade. Mm. So he could have been studying it for so long that he's the only one willing to try, but also has the knowledge yeah. of it and has thought about it enough to think that it's not an aberration against religion either. So Because, mm. mm. of course, he has a mountain of books. Probably largely yeah. on the subject, right? Mm. And Visit does say that the words that when they when they figure out what the words are, that they're only found in like one very obscure religious mm. text. So it may be that you know it's not something that most religious scholars would have the knowledge required to do. Mm. But is that the words to animate or the words like in the chem? Because like, are they the same thing? Because golems mm. they have different things. Like the the new one and the current ones have different things. On yeah, their scrolls. That's true. Mm. So, are there words to wake up a golem for the first time, or is this to create the words, or is it like a border of specific words? It's just a yeah. It's it's potentially very complex. Yeah, which yeah. is why you need this guy with tons of books. Yeah. <laughs> Traditionally, there's so many different versions, like any folklore or myth or religious stories. There's, there's different versions, and in one of the versions, you know, you had to write the word like on the golem's forehead, like you didn't put mm. a piece of paper in their head. Um, but then part of the ritual was erasing one of the lines, which turned it from one word into another. Right. And I think it turned it from, I've probably got this wrong, but it's, it's, it was something like turning it from clay into life or something mm. like that. And uh, that, like, was, that was what woke it up. Which is like a pun or a play on words. Yeah. <laughs> a pun. A pun. Yeah. A pun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't want to impugn you. Um, oh, uh, I'm very delighted to find like my vocation in the disc world here, though. Like, I don't know where I would be working. <laughs> yeah, true. True. Once there's a murder, of course, we very quickly meet the watch. And this is a proper watch book, to use your mm. words from last episode, Liz, because <laughs> Sam Vimes is oh, Yeah, because of course. Yeah. That's the only way. It's, yeah, it's not a watch book if he's not in it. Mm. It's just got Watchmen. Oh, well, look, he's very much in this yeah. book. As are so many Watchmen, although they, they do say at one point that there's about 20 people in the watch, which is so it's still quite small at this stage. Is it including the Cable Street particulars, though? I don't, I, well, maybe not actually, hmm. but I don't, we don't know how many of them there, there are. There is a reference to them. Yeah, at the beginning, but then they yeah. don't mention them again, yeah, or maybe again. I missed it, but yeah. So there is like, we don't know how many they are because they're a shady cabal of mm. undercover police because it's undercover crimes. Yeah. And he, and he very rarely ever calls on them in his own books. Like, in fact, I don't know that they crop up. That, well, I'll probably find out as we go, but I, yeah. I don't think they crop up very much in later books. That we know of. Uh, oh, well, that's true. Dun, 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 dun. <gasps> Someone's an undercover and they stayed that way. Mm. We also introduced quite early on to one of my favorite recurring bits of the book, which is Vimes's uh, imp-powered organizer. Oh, the disorganizer. <laughs> I used to have a sound file on, on one of my, I can't remember if I used it. I think it was on one of my computers and I set it to like this, the alert sound for something or other. This was ages ago, and it was a recording of, I think it was Terry Pratchett saying, bingly, bingly, beep. <gasps> no. And it just would play all the time. And I'm sure if we if you search on the internet, you probably still find that somewhere. Mm. 
you can indeed find this sound file on the internet. It was recorded at a signing or a convention and was originally posted on Usenet way back in the days of newsgroups. So it was also way back in the days before portable digital recorders that got good sound. But we dug it up and here it is. Bingly, bingly, beep. It was very annoying. <laughs> it was like, it was like those. I, I listened to an episode of podcast recently, which was about the sort of era of uh, ringtones changing on mobile phones. Wait, um, me too. Was it 99% invisible? Yes, of course it yeah, was 99% course it was. invisible. I mean, the second best podcast after Pratt Chat. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. I would, I in would, the world. I yeah. would go along with that. Um, <laughs> and it was along the lines of that annoying ringtone in that. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll link to that episode in the show notes. It's a very good episode. But yeah, it just, it was around that era when I had this bingly, bingly beep noise that would mm. come out of my computer every now and then it was weird oh i want one for my phone we, we could make our own maybe we'll we'll put up our own <laughs> one maybe we should all do our own version. yeah we'll just all just record bingly bingly boo yeah it'd be great uh poor old imp i feel oh. bad for him because he's trying he's just he's been thrown in the deep end like he's like mm. the beta version of a thing that hasn't been properly tested <laughs> yeah <laughs> although later in the book pratchett's like predicting siri because there's that bit where Vimes wakes up in the night and he's and he like says something, oh, what time is it? And he, he wakes up and says, oh, the time is, which I will confess is one of the main functions I use Siri for on my iPhone. <laughs> but I'm just, it's late at night and I've woken up and I want to know what time it is without looking at the bright light of my phone. I'm just like, Siri, what time is it? Mm. I'm sorry if I just activated your Siri, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, the disorganizer, though, is really important here. Uh, first of all, because it, Give Sybil a reason to exist in this book, which I found was so disappointing. Yeah. She, she, she just appears as a thought and then vanishes when Sybil is one of, one of the best people. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, it's so brilliant. And, uh, but then also it means that Vimes gets to carry around the thing that pretty early on he says he, he hates, you know, he makes this really big difference between, uh, those who do and those who are done for mm. sort of thing. And, and the shaved and the shave verse. Yeah. 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 You know, he pushes against that all the time and now he's carrying it in his pocket and this, this little thing that keeps trying to tell him, oh, I can do that for you. Just make sure you say memo first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's trying to train him <laughs> yeah. rather than the other way around. Yeah. Uh, that was great. But, uh, but he's got some work to do as he always does. Um, after he survives his assassination attempt. Oh, yes. Oh, this is so good. But it's, it's, it's one of those things where the assassins are always like unstoppable, implacable agents of death until they come up against anyone who's important to the plot. Yeah. <laughs> I remember thinking this in soul music that I'm like, how on earth does Buddy survive? It feels like they send the work experience assassin though. Like, mm. like it's just the vibe of him, which is kind of like, oh, it's my first kill or lack thereof. Like it's, mm. yeah. When he, when he like, when he lets him go and he says, I think he's quite promising. I was like, is that guy going to turn up in a later book? Because <laughs> I kind of want him to. Like yeah. Some would, student assassin who becomes a copper. It would kind of be cool if Vimes had his assassin, wouldn't it? That mm. was, was always the guy that rocked up and gave it another crack. Yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing I loved about the assassination attempt, though, is, is the way that Vimes gets around it. It's It's explained to a point so that it seems to make sense, but then I kind of sat down for a while and tried to figure out physically how that would because he's propped up a crossbow and he's got his he's tied a string to it and he's got his cigar on it so it burns through yeah and then sort of closes the door and and it's a now a, a black box and something crazy happens inside mm. and I, I just wish i could see yeah. <laughs> i wish i could see the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. moments and the flame spurting up and shredding his uh, hijinks mm. yeah. yeah 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 um but it is great it's a lot of fun and i like that that's a thing that comes back later on 
It's a theme of, yeah, landing amongst a bunch of animals and having to sprint away. (laughs) Oh, well, I was thinking more him having assassination attempts, but you're right. That is also a theme that recurs (laughs) in this book. Um, Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Hmm. But then, you know, then it is off to work. We meet Captain Carrot writing one of his famous letters home. (laughs) Delightful. Yeah, it's um, so boring. All he's got is murders and stuff to write about, not fun mining statistics. Yeah. <laughs> but it's such a, I, I like it because it's a clever way of like bringing us up to speed on what's happened in the watch um, since the last time we read a book about them. Um, and it's just, it's just a bit of fun. It just really sets his character nicely. Mm. Mm. And he uses too many exclamation marks. And yet he's, we never think that he's insane. No, he's extremely sane. Yeah. yeah. Indeed. There we go. Yeah. He's, he's too sane. Yeah. He's gone out the other side. <laughs> but then uh, we get a second murder pretty quick as well mm. before we've even investigated the first one. But can I just quickly say, I enjoyed how much he was, he was eating at a cafe and he was being served by Gimlet, as in like, like eyes like Gimlet's. Oh, you mean that gut, that dwarf who works down the, the cafe yes. and sells rats? It was a very nice callback <laughs> yeah, to an yeah. earlier book. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. He detects a crime and um, they solve all that and then they, is it, are we seeing the murder or are we discovering the murder? Because there's two murders. Uh, well, we, we sort of post-murder the second one. Like, we, we see it or we see the aftermath of it. And yeah, death it, coming in. It's yeah. like immediately post-murder, right? Yeah. So, mm. like, and he hasn't realized that he's dead yet, but his head's kind of deflated. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I do like, I like his attitude where he's like, well, I haven't got time for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I have to categorize the throwing muffins. Like, I just can't. Yeah, yeah. Be I'd, dead. I'd, I'd feel like that. I'd be like, do you know how much editing I have to do? <laughs> There's a lot of podcasts i got to make. But that actually bothers me a little bit later because when we're talking to the zombie later on where, where he kind of refused to die until he'd managed to sort out. Oh, Mr. Slant of the, we, mm, oh, the accountants we go. killed. Yeah, and, and he'd refused to die. I'm like, death would never allow that. That's ridiculous. Well, how do zombies get made i don't know <laughs> this is my problem well i think well being undead is is it the same i mean you are kind of dead but like but you're still walking around it's a it's a weird surely this museum guy would have wanted to become a zombie though because he could still run his museum as a zombie mm. so if there's an option well maybe there's a fungus or something that needs yeah. to be involved yeah like growing in their, so. in their brain stem <laughs> yeah i don't think we ever find out what the origin of discord zombies are mm. like it doesn't seem to be that they get bitten by other zombies and it doesn't seem to be that somebody raises them on purpose. I mean, the only time we see one being created is Windle Poons. Although, oh, well, maybe we do find out Red Shoes' origins. But I, I gather it's a little bit more like if you have unfinished business, you might come mm-hmm. back as a zombie. So they're more like, to use uh, Dungeons & Dragons term, which is something that'll come up again later, it, they're more like a revenant than a zombie. Yeah. Um, Unless, of course, it's important to the plot that you die, in which case uh, no choice at all, regardless of how many croissants you've got to put in order. <laughs> it's fine. That's, uh, that's cool. Crack is on. It, is, a, is a dwarf <laughs> croissant, does it work like a boomerang? Is it like- <laughs> no, it would be like um, buckshot. Oh. Because it would, so flaky, when you throw it, it's... Mm. A whole lot of different weapons. Or you could, like, attach a string to it and use it as, like, a grappling hook because <laughs> it would grab onto <laughs> things. I don't think that would work. But I don't know. I just like that idea. But you think the dwarf bread would work, so. That's mm. the- but then our favourite new recruit turns up. Yes. It feels weird that it takes up until, like, this is, what, the 18th book, I think, for us to meet Cheery Little Bottom. Mm. But what a delight she is. Yeah. Uh, it- wait. Or he. Mm. He is at this point. Yep. Yes. This this bloke from the mines. Well, no, from the Alchemist Guild. Mm. Yeah, who has not done well at the traditional dwarf pursuits and is looking for something else. 
welcome to CSI Ankh-Morpork. Pork. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, what a delight from from the start, really. But we also get Vimes' attitude towards dwarves or dwarfs, as Pratchett always insists mm. on saying. But I like how Cheery's trying to like rip the band-aid off with her name like the whole time. She's like, you know, little bottom cheery. And Vimes just is like, Yep, that's your name, that's cool. That's and then mm. at the end of their encounter. <laughs> He has to put himself under a coat and laugh for a really long time. Yeah. It is It is a very silly name. It is. And and also Vimes has problems. He's a little bit of, it's not racist, is it? He's a, bit of, he's a little bit speciest. Mm. Like he yeah. he won't allow vampires in, in the watch at all. And he's, or any he, undead except for werewolves at this stage. Well, yeah. I, I, ah, crucially at this stage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, yeah, he's he's got some like he's battled with the alcohol. He's he's learning how to deal with some stuff and to become a bit of a a better person. Yeah. And it, I mean in Men at Arms you have that whole thing where he's like, "Well, I work with dwarves and trolls and I talk to them every day, so I'm allowed to say mean things about them because yeah. I'm talking about specific trolls and dwarves that I've met. <laughs> like I'm not making assumptions about a whole species based on hearsay." And you have some sympathy for that attitude but at the same time you're also like yeah but is it really okay sam and this seems to be the book where he's kind of like going yeah yeah all right oh maybe maybe not and he's he's changing his attitudes a bit Mm. they underscore it with him hating people as well like he's like i also hate humans but to be fair he does pretty much hate everybody that's true Mm. yeah he's suspicious of everyone Mm. yeah Uh, but he's got a job for cherry immediately go and check out this new Murder. Did she apply for that job? Because it just seems kind of like, how did she? Because she was the only r- applicant, but which seems like you, that means she did apply. Yeah, but like, what was the job ad for? <laughs> uh, we would like an alchemist. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I mean, because how does Vimes describe it? He says, uh, "Yeah, listen, I know how to be a copper. It's mainly walking and talking, but there's lots of things I don't know. You find the scene of a crime, and there's some grey powder on the floor. What is it? I don't know." <laughs> But you know how to mix things up in bowls and can find out. I'm like, oh, you're great. Uh, which is interesting, an interesting contrast to his feelings about Sherlock Holmesian style deduction yeah. later on, where he's like, no, that's evidence doesn't, doesn't matter. Like, mm-hmm. it's not good. Yeah. And all the like, oh, it'd be great if we could get some clues where there's all these greasy fingerprints all over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. And, and clues always has a capital C because they're, you know, they're so important, but he can't. <laughs> be having with him yeah 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 yeah. and this is where yeah the mystery starts to unfold now we find there's weird circumstances around the murder of the priest he's got weird stuff under his fingernails there's white clay sort of around the joint um he's got a bit of paper rolled up and shoved in his mouth with something written on it in what seems to be his own blood um which is freaky as. And having just like watched all of Mindhunter in a really short period of time, it just like put a whole new lens on this for me. <laughs> so I was like, oh, it's actually quite horrifying when you like picture it in your head properly. Mm, yeah. But yeah. Whereas previously I'm imagining it like as a quite wholesome murder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just a, just your regular murder. It's been conked a little bit and then he's like dies. Yeah. Someone stacks up his books. But yeah, it's well creepy when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this is around the same time also. This is when Carrot and Angua, um, find the other corpse of Mr. Hopkinson, the human who runs the dwarf bread museum after they break up the robbery of the dwarf bakery next door. But Angua having a sniff around with her werewolf sharp senses says there's no, no other people like living people have been in here for ages, which is, you know, the first clue. Mm. And look, one of the things that I obviously remembered for the book was like, oh, the, those two guys would kill by a golem. 
Yeah. Um, which they were. Spoiler yeah. alert. But I think they make that fairly obvious to us. We're a little bit ahead of the characters in some ways, but in other ways we're like not at all. Hmm. But because uh, golems well, themselves have not been introduced as a concept in this book until like later on, but like having read it previously, I was like, yeah, I, I was like that annoying person who's like, oh, I know who the murderer is. Yeah. Because, <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was interesting that they didn't actually talk about golems until like, oh no, they talk oh, about right at the start. Yeah. Know, like clay model of a man sort of thing. But that's, it's not pointed at, like, okay, it's, not it's the opening of the book, but it's kind of like just left there and, you yeah. don't come back to it for a long time. Mm. Yeah. So I think I think probably I would amend what I just said. And so like having read it before, we're definitely ahead of the characters. Yeah. But it's hard to know. And this is one of those things where it's like, I can't remember how much I figured out along the way. No, I've got no idea. Um, mm. But I definitely remembered, you know, there were golems uh, killing people. And I was like, oh, yeah, right. Um, and clearly this weird golem is who's being sold by another golem has got something to do with it. Uh, but then also, you know, there's the golem who's shoving the paper in the mouth. And one thing I didn't remember was, is that the golem who has killed him? Who's like, re- like ac- was it an accident? They mm-hmm. And we we do get that answered later on. We get some mysteries happening. They decide to figure out what's written on the piece of paper. And they get a visit to consult the things in a break between handing out pamphlets. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> comfortable visit. It's, oh, he's so great. Um, yeah. I like him a lot because he's very gentle in his uh, evangelism. But you wouldn't like him if he was in your workplace. <laughs> it seems unusual for him to, like, bring that to work. <laughs> you know? It seems like, like something he should be doing in his off hours. <laughs> but Vimes also, like, doesn't tell him not to. He's like, oh, no, I'll talk to you about your pamphlets later because he seems just so, like, earnest. So you kind of... It's like kicking a puppy. Yeah. 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 I guess he's showing some, you know, respect for someone else's beliefs, but at the same time, he's doing it by showing disrespect for their disbelief. <laughs> yeah, I don't beliefs. know if he's doing that or if he's just finding himself the easiest way through. Yeah, yeah, mm. sure, I'll read those. No worries. Now get on with this. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he's – that's pr- he probably doesn't have any respect, to be honest. He just needs to get what he needs to get done. He doesn't seem to really have much to, <laughs> to do with gods, really, does no. he? No. Um, as we discovered towards the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, we don't really find his perspective on that, but th- that's all right. Visit's going to have a great time later, like with the new recruit, so it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Should we talk about the coat of arms then? Oh, yes, yes, because Vimes has an appointment to keep, hence why he has an appointment-keeping device <laughs> with an imp in it. Oh. Uh, but For things yeah. that are important. <laughs> Of course, of course. Imp- impatient? Yeah. Uh, but he, he goes off to see the Heralds. Uh, and particularly meets with their leader, Dragon King of Arms, who is much too Vimes' annoyance of vampire. But this yeah. whole sequence just killed me because I'd forgotten it. Yeah. And it's just, it's, and I don't know how you come up with this from your brain. It's insane. This whole idea that when they make a coat of arms, they have to paint it from life. <laughs> Not they have to. It's just that's like the proper way to but do like, it, right? Yeah. Anything else would just be an embarrassment. Mm. Yeah, it would, it would be it would be fake. Yeah. Um, so they have all the heraldic animals, <laughs> including like an aging wyvern and a like griffin and a like you know, like all these creatures that exist in heraldry on Earth, of course, but we don't have them really here. They exist on the Discworld, although presumably they must have previously existed on the Discworld because there's not you never see many of them about. Um, but there they are, and mm. they've got two aging hippopotamuses <laughs> that rear arthritically when it's <laughs> yeah. time to do the. Oh, thing. Yeah, they're really trying to do all the poses, like on Passant or and what's the what's the one where they're rearing up? I've forgotten what. Um, it's is, just rampant, rampant. That's yeah, it. Uh, yeah, there you go. So good. I, and I love how, like, not only are they just a bit old, but they're also you know arthritic and um 
their bowels are failing and uh, <laughs> I'll just come off nicely once it dries up. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it, it really paints this this wonderful picture of this wheezing, hacking sort of barn full of well, courtyard full of these awful old animals that are just desperately waiting to die, but still have a real purpose. I feel like I've been to like small zoos like that. You know, yes. you, you know, you're out in the country and there's like some like you know tourist trap place and it's got a selection mm-hmm. of animals. That there used to be this one out uh, with the giant worm. In Victoria, oh, right. and it was like a giant earthworm-shaped thing that you could go in to look at animals, and they had like uh, like a galar and some dingoes and a collection of kangaroos that you could meet, and and you're like, oh yeah, they all looked a bit sad. Yeah, it puts me in the mind of like a, a, a llama that looks like it's a bit moth-eaten mm. oh, sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, actually, that was the place where the um it'd been abandoned for ages. Oh, the shark, and it had the old shark in a tank. Yeah, or what? Um, and someone discovered it, like an urban explorer guy discovered it. And yeah, posted some pictures of it online. And- it's just this shark in a tank that had, like started going mossy and stuff because it had all been abandoned. And when the photos sort of went semi-viral, and then people started visiting it, and then they had to like rescue this old preserved shark and put it somewhere else. Wow. Yeah, it was insane. Like it was like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll put pictures up in the show notes if yeah, anyone wants to look at it. Yeah, like a, uh, I do. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's some good links to There's like a follow-up story and some videos and stuff. Yeah. Spooky as well. Like it's yeah. just in a dark room, this preserved shark. It's just. The original photos are really beautiful as mm. well. But yeah, creepy as hell. <laughs> so is that how you picture this? Um, well, not quite because this is more like they're not on display for people to come and visit. So they, they actually just probably leaving. have a fine life. They're just old and a bit a bit bored and a bit sad. Do you follow that Twitter account with the charming British farmer who, like, greets all his animals by name? Uh, no. Okay, well, there's this British farmer who has a, an educational farm and every morning he does the rush hour where he goes, who's going to be out today? And he opens up the barn and, like, geese and ducks and, and like, a, and a sheep and all kinds of animals stream out and he greets them all by, like, their personal name. And I kind of picture it like that was it in its early days. Yeah, yeah. And it's now 50 years later. <laughs> And everyone gets along, but they're just a bit tired and like the goose has been patted one too many times and it snaps after you like in, yeah. in like one moment. But yeah, everyone's just a bit tired, but happy to be doing what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> this section too is where all of the puns come in. Liz. The poons. The poons. Um, the, <laughs> and they have all the different coats of arms and. He's showing them off. And, and they explaining. explain them why they're funny, which is like the worst thing you can do as a pun. Like, it's just so good. Yeah. Well, you have to because they're puns in a different language, which is quite a feat uh, because it's very difficult as, uh, as you know, has been remarked by many people who've talked about how uh, Pratchett can be translated or not. Um, there are puns that just cannot be translated. Mm. We recently received a podcard from one of our listeners in Germany, and I'll let him explain what goes on with some of the untranslatable puns in the German editions. Greetings from Germany, Sven here. A lot of Terry's puns are untranslatable, which is funny in itself, because in some German books, actually, the translator has his own footnotes, like, yeah, that's an untranslatable joke. Sorry for that. Couldn't do that. Or stuff like that, so you get another meta level into Terry's works because you have another layer of footnotes under his footnotes explaining some footnotes with other footnotes, which makes it funny in itself. You'll be able to hear the full podcast on our subscriber-only podcast, The Oot Club. Thanks so much, Sven. Did you have a favourite from these ones? 
I obviously very much like the the plot significance pun. Oh, it's yes. like very very good one. The, the fish one. Oh yeah, because it's like funny. it's a red herring, oh, yeah. but it's not. Yeah, because mm. it's just a herring. There are some classic ones like quad subigio farinum. Yeah, because I need the dough for the yeah. baker. That yeah. whole baker bit. I, I annotated my book like a high school person about to go under their tertiary exams, uh, and I have one here because it was it was everything right. Like it's the chamber pot, the pistoir, and <laughs> then and then yeah, the I. <laughs> <laughs> like because I need the dough. It's just brilliant. Jeez. Incidentally, do yeah. you guys have yes. the pictures of the coats of arms in the yes. front of your book? Yeah, mm. because great, aren't they? because look at Mister Arthur Carey Candlemaker and look at the Guild of Assassins. Look at them. Well, there oh. is the parallels. They yeah. are almost the same. That's really look, interesting. Wow. In the top left corner, there's like sort of you know the the cape and then whatever it is in the carry one. I'm sure it explains it. Yeah. But um. And then the candelabras look like the stars. They're very, very similar. I was like, damn you, Pratchett. Yeah. Damn you for putting it in front of my face and me not noticing Uh, until way too late. Just like Dragon King of Arms does to vibes. Oh, that is is very good. (laughs) I hadn't noticed that. That is very clever. Now, Vimes comes away from that not only feeling a bit weird about the fact that he's not allowed to have a coat of arms because of his ancestor who killed the last King of Ankh. Though there is a good pun in his coat of arms as well, like it's a stone bust because of stone face Vimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but also having discovered rather unexpectedly that his own Nobby Nobs may well be the last descendant of the last Earl of Ankh. And I had a question about this. Had Pratchett been planning for him to be fancy from the beginning by calling him Nobby Nobs, or is that just like a wonderful coincidence? Well, I mean, he always gave him that sort of slightly snobby sounding name because his full name is like, you know, C.W. St. John Nobs. Mm. And you're like, well, that's, that's a pretty, pretty he's, fancy name. He's just come off from being a ca- uh, count. Was he Count de Nobs? Oh, yeah, Count de Oh, Nobs. yeah, from Masquerade. Um, so there's a, there's, maybe that's where he got the idea. And uh, later on you find out like it's not a not a ruse. Like it's he's was pretty much said that he is actually a fancy guy. Yeah, he's just not the Earl of Ankh. Well he might because then he got the tiara and the, the lockets and stuff. Oh, yeah, they, and they leave Im- that hanging. And they oh. implied that actually, yeah, there's some family stuff going on. Well, I took that as a callback to the comment where it's like, Well, yeah, he's got this ring, but like have you seen all the other stuff that his family's got? Like they nicked it from other people. See, but I, I thought it was ambiguous because it could have gone either way. It can go either so way. So I either he's like, Oh, thank God they didn't see all the other stuff I've stolen, or thank God he didn't see all the other family jewels that we own. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I read it as the latter one because I was kinda like, Oh, that's actually Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think but you're right. I think you could go either way. I read it. I read it a bit more as, well, I mean, I think Nobby thinks that, you know, he's, he's, because he doesn't realize that it was all, well, he kind of does realize it was fake, but he, but he, you know, I think you're After right. all his hobnobbing. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. Well, he's hobnobbing with the knobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's weird. So Vimes does tell him to go along and he does go along and that becomes like his plot sort of strand for the book is him like, dealing with the complex emotions that come along with being from the gutter <laughs> effectively mm-hmm. and being told actually you're from the upper echelons of the class system and his complicated feelings about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also still got a couple of murders to investigate, but that's not the only crimes going on because there's pretty quickly another one. Vimes goes to the patrician's office for an interview, but he's kept waiting 15 minutes. Which is unthinkable. Even though he has got, like, the terrible organiser, He's he knows he's there at the right time. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and he pushes open the door and veterinary has been poisoned. He's on the floor. He's not looking well. I, th- I heard that he was dead. 
<laughs> so many people have heard that he was dead uh, almost immediately. Uh, and this puts Vimes into a total tailspin. He's like, well, this is not good. Like, who could be doing this? How do they get past his defenses? And I, and you, you do sort of think, wow, how, how would you get past his defenses? And it becomes the central mystery. Mm. Like, yeah, there's the murders, but also it's like, how does someone poison Vetinari? Mm. Like, he, he is an, well, he's an ex-assassin, but he's been through the training. He yeah. knows what he's doing. And he's suspicious and he's smart. Yeah. But someone's got to him. And he's been poisoned with arsenic, no less, which they do keep describing as like, it's our old friend that we return to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it is the classic poison of choice in murder mysteries, you know. Mm. Yeah. This is the beginning of Vimes trying to figure it out. It gets cheery on the case. It's like, you've got to find out where the poison is. He's not having much luck. Although I, I do like that already, even at the first murder scene, she was like using very unorthodox methods gets the imp in, in the picture box to paint bigger and bigger pictures of the dead priest's eyes to see if there's an imprint of the last thing that he saw. Yeah. Which was, yeah, that was cool. J- just like in every CSI, the zoom in there, zoom in, zoom in, enhance. zoom in. Enhance. Yeah, enhance. <laughs> so that's it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was great. Uh, can you get them to make copies? Yeah, the imp's got a great memory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just so good. They, they, they have a lot of trouble figuring out. Yeah, they change rooms. They make sure it's not the taste testers. And I love that the taste testers are the chef's sons who are very well paid. Like, it's just an extra layer of smart. Um, They change the sheets. They do all this stuff. It's basically elimination, elimination, what's left. And it still can't figure it out. Yeah, yeah. And it drives Vimes nuts that he cannot figure this out. I just love that veterinary figures it out. And also, I love that when you already know what it is and you're reading through it, you're like, it's so obvious. They keep, like, pointing you to it, but also not really. Okay, this is the moment where I'm going to tell you in my version of the book, this annoyed me the yep. most. The cover. Now, because the cover has a photo of, I, I'll leave it for a second just in case somebody hasn't actually read through, but of the weapon of choice. Hmm. And it, it just, oh, like, stop it. Stop it. This book is clever enough. You don't have to try to be clever too, publisher. Mm. Someone on our, our Twitter pointed this out as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I was like, you're right. That's, that's, that's terrible. Well, this yeah. is one of the most spoilery cover ones as well, because there's a cover that none of us have here where they show, like, a golem with a crown on it. Oh, that's the American paperback, I Yeah, think. Right. so it's just real spoilery. But the cracked pot, that's all they needed. Like yeah. a, there's a cracked pot. Yeah. Yeah, a bit of, bit of, bit of terracotta. Yeah. Would have been fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, with extra but, terror. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so th- this, this sets that mystery in motion. They're like, okay, we don't know who murdered these two old men. We don't know who's poisoning the patrician. Uh, and they're just looking for clues, trying to figure out what's going on with varying degrees of success. Well, I remember when I first read it thinking, as Wimes did, oh, it's the salt and pepper and I'm so smart and I've figured it out and everyone else is so stupid. But um, I was the, the one who was stupid was me and it was not the salt and pepper. Well, he so. does like does that thing where he very carefully like directs your attention to several things oh, along the definitely. way. Oh, it's like, masterful. The licking the finger and turning the yeah. page mm. was the one – on rereading, because I, to be honest, I'd, I'd forgotten where I'd ultimately got to, which of course I shouldn't have now realizing that everything was set up from the get go. But on this rereading, I had forgotten. And yeah, that mm. one really grabbed me because all the ones before I'm like, oh yeah, well, it's not the rug, is it? Like, of course it's not. This yeah. is way too early in the book. We've got to spend more time figuring out what's going on here. But because as well, Drumnot got pulled into that, I believe as well, where he yeah. also licked a page and was like, <gasps> Which is how Vimes thinks of it, but mm-hmm. we've seen the patrician do it 
earlier than that. And I, I, and I did go, oh, are they going to figure it out? And I was like, that's what it is, but they won't figure it out yet. Mm. And then when Drumnot does it, I was like, oh, he's going to figure it out now. And that's about halfway, maybe two thirds through the book. And I'm yeah. like, oh, that's good. They'll figure it out before the end of the book. It's, I don't remember. That, that's not no. it either. No. So I was like, oh, uh, but because he doesn't know what it is, there's all those great sequences where like later on in the book, he's like, talking to Carrot and getting him to imagine all the things that happen with the food and then that leads him to the idea of getting a dwarf into the dumbwaiter and mm-hmm. getting them to like nail up all of the levels up until uh, you know below Vetinari and all these crazy schemes that he comes up with to try and fix the problem. Crazy, but it also demonstrates just just how competent he is as a as a deducer mm. of problem yeah. solving stuff. Like he, he really thinks it through. It's great. Which also helps him then feel really awful when he hasn't ultimately figured out what it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But he does he does a great job though. You mm. want him on your case, like if you have something oh. happen to you. Yeah, I got sure. poisoned. He's very harsh on himself, like which is something I can identify with, but he he's he's always saying, like, I'm just not asking the right damn questions. And yeah. you're like, Oh well, look, come on, mate. Like, that's what makes him so good though, is that because he is so down on himself that he like forces himself into excellence. I'm not saying that's a healthy way to be, but I think that is why he part of why he's so good. Yeah. Sybil's absence is quite keenly felt in this book, yeah. isn't it? Because like there isn't like a moment where he goes home or like where she drops by or anything. Like that seems strange. She's only in that one scene, and that's when you know she's asleep. It's yeah. odd because you don't have to like pay her. It's a book. Mm. Like it's, you don't have to hire another actress. It's all right. Maybe she would have been one character too many because it is quite a packed book. Yeah, yeah. Actually, to be to be fair, there is a cast of thousands here. Mm. Yeah. Um, and well, not very many women. Which uh, I mean, there's really we get a few two. more like yeah, I was slightly <laughs> partway through the book. Well, that's true. We get yeah. some bonus ladies later. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. True, true. And the promise of more. I'm very excited to talk about that scene um, with Cheery in the in the office when she first wears her skirt. But yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get to <laughs> we'll get that there. pretty soon because she and Angua get teamed up to go and investigate one of the murders. Mm. And Angua, when she meets her, immediately realizes that she's a woman or a no, female dwarf. By smell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she lets her in on the secret but promises to keep it. It's there's a nice sort of camaraderie there, which is kind of spoiled a bit by the fact that Jiri is almost immediately, you know, racist about mm. wolves. Mm. Although it's weird because it's one of those things where you're like, all right, look, it, where, well, werewolves do kill people. Like this, it's one of the things where this is a fantasy book, and so you've got these creatures who follow fantasy rules, and you're like, well, how much do they have to? And the and the constant thing in Pratchett is always discovering that. Well, just because you're a vampire doesn't mean you have to eat people. Just because you're a werewolf doesn't mean you have to tear people's arms off. Mm. Wait, wait, what is it? She's a vegetarian by day and a humanitarian by night. Or she's trying not to be. I try not to be, yeah. Oh, that was so wonderfully put. They go off to investigate and they follow up a lead by going, well, there's this clay. Let's go and talk to Igneous the Troll who's got a pottery. Where am I going with this? He actually uh, he <laughs> provides quite quite a lot of information because he is talking about uh, you know the the clay that's made up of all of the old broken bits of pot. So he kind of sets that mm. whole thing up as a, as something that exists. Grog, they call Grog, it. Grog, yeah. They find out some of it's been stolen. They're finding clues, but at the moment they don't know what the clues mean. But they fairly quickly are like, well, we think a golem might be involved, and. There's that moment where Angua's like, let's go and talk to a golem. Mm. She knows one or she's met one before. Um, she doesn't say in what circumstances or why, but the one that she knows to talk to is Dorful, who works at a slaughterhouse. And they have my, one of my favorite quotes in the thing where he's describing his job and Cheery's like, that's awful. And he's like, almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was so, so good. <laughs> oh, that was really good. Uh, but and but she's like, oh, we're gonna meet, and like this is after a few things have gone down. Like it's after she takes um, Cheery to the undead bar. 
and there's the old woman who just hangs out there. Oh yeah, yeah the, the the old daft lady that yeah. just everyone looks after. That's wonderful. I, beers, right? Yeah, beers. yeah. Just kind of yeah. like cheers. It is because mm. everybody knows you're undead, I yeah. guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was fun because because cheers. Like, I don't want to go to a dwarf bar because then you have to be all dwarfy. That bit is one of several where we kind of get a better idea of what's going on with Cheery because Angle was like, but isn't it great being a dwarf if you're a woman because like you can do anything the men can do? And she Mm. replies, well, yeah, if you only do what the men can do because there's this whole thing where dwarves supposedly don't care about gender and they only have one pronoun which is translated into English as he, but that's kind of the problem is that, yeah, there's only one gender, it's male. And mm. so, even if you're female, you've got to all act like what humans would consider a fairly stereotypically male gender. And this is, a, again, where this sort of fantasy element comes in and makes this a bit different to how the real world works because she comes from a culture where there are basically there's only one gender, even though there's two sexes. Mm. And now she's mixing with humans who've got like different gender expressions. And she's like, well, I want to try being kind of girly. And it's frowned upon in dwarf society. So she's, which gives it this weird sort of interesting dimension. And I think we've got a question about it. So we don't have to talk about it too much Mm. right now. But yeah. I did want to say, uh, Angua, at one point, I'm going to read talking about how it's like that in the watch, like you kind of got to act like a bloke a little bit yeah, uh, in order to get by. And she says, you know, you soon learn the language. Basically, it's how much beer you supped last night, how strong the curry was you had afterwards and where you were sick. Just think <laughs> egotistical. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just think egotistical. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> It is pretty good. Ah, that's very good. Followed by the way, I just realised, you'll soon get the hang of it. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) Bit on the nose there. Oh, dear. Oh, Terry. (laughs) What are you you doing, buddy? The other thing to note is that 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 passage I was just talking about, that's when Angwood sort of first says, you're a woman, basically. Mm. And that's when Cheery's pronouns change from the narrator's point of view. Whereas, you know, everybody pretty much still says he until right near the end of the book, except for Angua and the narration text Mm. i did when i when i was coming across this think that if this book was written today it might have looked very different uh Mm. in in the way that this whole gender problem is is kind of constructed because uh you you know doing the the default male is so well done it's like we all understand and know that that's a thing and how awful that is um I, i think it would have been far more interesting if dwarves were just dwarves yeah, mm. and then the gender expression later. I, you know, you, I obviously can't change what's written, but in my head, I have this little fantasy that it would have been cool if if Cheery was like, "Oh wait, no, no, but I'm a girl one, and I want to try different gender expressions." If then some other dwarfs were like, "Well, I I'm a guy one, and I might want to try different gender expressions, but I do mm. like your lipstick." Yeah, do you know, like or, yeah. that would have been so much more interesting. I think if it was written today, maybe there would have been a bit of a play somewhere there because he, he's definitely saying some important stuff for the 90s mm. yeah and i think it is important to locate it in the cultural moment that yeah. it was part of but it, it is quite different to how you think about that now mm. for sure i mean because also the way that she chooses to express her gender is very traditional as well i mean which is not a problem like that's the whole point if you want to express your gender you have to express it in terms of the cultural signifiers that show what your gender is mm. or at least you know choose the ones that make sense to you well, the thing is, she's not because culturally, like that's not her culture, right? Oh, she's no, she's true. choosing mm. and picking, uh, but it's still kind of flavoured by her culture. You know, when she uh, eventually pops on some high heels, oh yeah, they're not stillies, like they're not nice mm. little slender stilettos. <laughs> they're iron heels. You know, <laughs> that she welded them, them herself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. I love that. 
And I couldn't help thinking how uncomfortable that would be because high heels are not just like flat shoes that you add a heel to. There's like an angle to it. Mm. So yeah, she'd, I'd be like, you're in a lot of pain for this. It would not be comfortable. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. After they've been off to see Dorfall and speak to him, he then asks for some time off, which is something that all golems do. They have to go off and do things on holidays or they stop working. And then a little bit after that, he turns up at the watch house and claims he done the murders, mm. <laughs> to use the language that all of the coppers continuously use in the book, which is hilarious. And he sits there calmly confessing to literally everything that he's asked yeah. like, for a bit. I did enjoy that. But it's around the same time that Vimes has his run-in with a golem in the street as well, mm. where he just sort of sees one on the bridge and then chases after it with the copper's instinct without thinking about what he's going to do if he catches it. See, I thought it was weird as well. Like, Dorfall sort of setting something up here because I assume that he was the golem from right at the start that was trying to sell. He's probably the one that was trying to save the murder victim. So he's already shown himself as a bit of a leader and a bit of a free thinker. And here he's showing himself potentially as a liar. He has the ability or at least someone who's able to bend the truth, you know, because he's saying I did it, which in a way he did. Because it's clay of my clay. Because it's clay of my clay. So, yeah. But they also drew straws. They didn't all rock up and equally say, hey- we did we it. did this um it's it's i don't know it's interesting and it makes me think that he just already had something more something mm. extra yeah that is interesting there's a lot of questions about what's going on with those golems oh yeah because there's 12 of them who meet and do this and i got, like i got a bit confused at one point in the book where i was like is that all of the golems like cuz they say there's not many of them but then they go oh no there's heaps of them and is then, Mr. Pump one of them? Well, no, I, that's a good question. And mm. I think the answer is probably no, because most of the other 11 are the ones who smash themselves. Mm. Well, it's because they're, isn't it, because it's like they're the apostles? Yeah, oh, it's totally apostles and, you know, dust from dust and all sorts of, there are very straight lines you can draw there. Yeah, mm. for sure. Speaking of pronouns, as we were a little while ago, there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a weird bit, certainly in my edition anyway, where they can't decide whether they're going to call Dorfal it or he. But when they decide it's a person later on in the book, he becomes a he. Like, there's no there's no question of his gender. It's just like, well, you're either a thing and you're an it or you're a person and you're a he. And it's like a like, thread of defaults yeah. throughout the book. Yeah. Yeah, which I thought was interesting. And I, again, I wonder if you do that differently now. Actually, I wonder. I, I This is not a fully formed theory, but when he gets his receipt later mm. uh, and puts it in his head, the receipt gives him a gender. Ah. Oh, because it, it does say whoever he on it. so owns this, he shall be responsible for everything he does. I wonder if that confers. Oh, that's really gender. interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a very good theory. And again, that's you know that's putting a default gender in. Whereas now, I wonder if you would write golems with a you know a neutral pronoun and you'd call them they, or you, know, you might use yeah. a specific one like Z or something. But but yeah, that's that's really interesting. I hadn't spotted that. But that's yeah, significance okay. of words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and obviously, the words in his head. His head it's now. It's true, yeah. 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 That's a good pickup. Thanks, mate. Mm. But yeah, he, he turns himself in. Uh, Vimes returns from having chased the golem and lost it. Uh, and all the other golems get smashed. Yeah. Uh, well, and Carrot has by this stage determined that it was definitely not Dorful that did it by asking him very cunning questions and manages to extract the chem from Dorful's head by distracting him with a crossbow bolt, which is. I think the first really serious indication of how strong and powerful golems are mm. when he like catches the bolt and it like sort of melts against his and hand. Screeches, as it, as it, yeah. Oh, so good. 
but creepy. They are a bit creepy. Like, well, yeah. they're made to be creepy. Yeah. 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 And it's, it, I mean, there's such a, I mean, there's an obvious parallel with golems and, and robots. And I mean, you know, whenever you read about the history of science fiction and the idea of robots, there's a direct line from things like golems mm. and folklore and Frankenstein's monster through to the original play Rossum's Universal Robots, which is where the term comes from. There is that big question. It's like, are they people? Are they not people? And it's a very different question to what gets asked about most of the other non-human people who live in Ankh-Morpork, which mm. is like, well, you know, yeah, they're people, but we're going to be racist about them. Mm. Whereas this is like, well, are they even alive? Because even later we've got like Ridcully, the Archchancellor of the University, being like, this is an aberration. Oh, yeah. wait, no, that's the, it's his brother. Oh, his brother. Oh, yeah. right. Is it right? Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, because yeah, I forget about the, yeah. yeah. I, did, I did the exact same thing. I was like, <laughs> yay, yay, Ridcully. Oh, no, it's not. There's the, the other oh, one. It's that Hunan or Hunan? Uh, yeah, he, I don't think they use his first name in this. But I was, but, well, well, maybe they do. But, I was imagining yeah. it as Ridcully the whole time. I was like, okay, mm. it's a strange choice for him, but I mean, but now it makes sense. Yeah. I've just had another thought. I don't know if it's actually important in the slightest, but I assume that golems start looking quite human because they, they're, ex- they're described as looking human. But then by the time we get to them, because nobody's making them anymore, they're mm. patched and repaired so many times. They're kind of grotesque, right? They, they, it's a great description that they look like gingerbread men. Yeah, yeah. They're, <laughs> yeah. they're hideous, malformed sort of creatures that have a bit of a human look to them. But then at the end, in my head at least... Dorful comes back after being remade in a human sort of looking rather more human yeah shape remade as it were yeah yeah and easier to relate to yeah less of a monster mm. I wonder I wonder I don't know if that's just my brain well even his eyes look different though as well don't they like yeah because they talk about having stars in his eyes mm. yeah and that sort of thing and I'm not like sure that. if that's just when he was coming back or if it's different Permanent. permanently yeah. yeah actually just on that in that sequence where like he's had the extra words put in his head and then the words are gone but he wakes back up and there's that whole thing about his seeing the universe did you think of the universe brain meme when that happened because I I, I did not <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I love it I was like what is that <laughs> uh, now I want to, if you've, if, listeners, if you've got a good version of the universe brain meme, um, we'll put a link to it in the show notes so you know what we're talking about. We'd love to see your Discord mm. universe brain memes. <laughs> this is a, is a question that, like, this is not natural. This is, like, humans making life. But again, you know, the, the gods have got something to do with it. They talk about how it's blasphemous, but, like, is it not a religious thing? And that's, that's an interesting question because in our world, the myth comes from Judaism. It is about writing holy words that mm. makes them come to life. Do you, do you know your Bible very well? Only, I, only a little. I don't. I, I read a little bit uh, because I, I know that golems come from biblical writings and, and it's got something to do with Nebuchadnezzar and a huh. dream. And in the dream, there was a golem that had a golden head and like silver arms, brass chest. And as you go down the body, it got less and less precious. And then the feet were made of iron mixed with clay. And so feet of clay, which, you know, the title is apparently also used for like a point of weakness. Yes. Which is kind of cool. What do you think the point of weakness is in this book? As in like, what is the golden feet of clay? Is it their desire to be led rather than to be free? Mm. Or just that they need the words put in their head rather than them being able to do that naturally. But as in, do they need the words in their head? Because later with what happens with Dorful, is that like a matter of bleep? Or do you have to go through some sort of crisis to to be able to? Or you have to have the words in your head first, I think, and then have them... Like, like you, you, if the words weren't there, then the clay wouldn't animate in the first place, right? Yeah, and, and so, it couldn't so, be on your heart. So. Yeah, and, and you need to sort of be freed. Maybe that's, I don't know, that's my thought. Yeah, yeah. 
Or getting well, deep. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, I mean, they don't, I mean, the weakness is, is more the chem itself, right? The, yeah. In, in, if physically anyway. No, but what's their emotional weakness? Because like, mm, okay. jumping ahead, um, when we finally read the words that they themselves chose for the leader that they created, mm. it, I just broke my heart reading the yeah. things that they've written down. And I think there's a reason we didn't see it in full. Um, but yeah, just the little snippets of it are just like, it's really quite upsetting. Yeah. The things that they chose. Because there's pain there and fear as well. And, and they pick those things up clearly from humans, mm. from their masters. Like they're free, but the golems are working for people who are toilers. Like they don't work directly for a king. So they're getting their idea of that they should be led by a king from people who have kings, presumably. Because it didn't occur to them to change their own words. No. Well, maybe, well, maybe I mean, it did, but like, why didn't they? Like, it seems like a lot more effort to create someone new to lead you. Well, perhaps they don't know that their words can be changed by themselves. I mean, if we're going to talk about the sort of Asimov kind of, not, not you. Uh, <laughs> we, are, we are at Liz's house today, so Asimov is uh, around somewhere. But no, if we're writing t- his, um, in, intense psychological, um, science fiction books. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Uh, but it, you know, when you talk about the, the laws of robotics, like they they prevent them from doing things to humans, but they don't Do actually they? say. Well, well, they're supposed to, but they don't specifically say that they can't alter themselves, and so that which seems to be a bit of a loophole when you think about it. There's a lot of loopholes. Yeah, but they couldn't do anything to alter themselves that might harm others. So if the if the the chem does have, and we never see in full anybody's chem, mm. like which I think is appropriate. Like that seems like a very personal thing. Um, I mean, obviously, the characters in the book do when they read them, but the character's very te- like gracious about, it. like he's not rude about it. Yeah. So, and the, I mean, the closest we get is a couple of the phrases in um, the one that Dorfel writes and puts in the father's mouth, and that's we don't know if that's a, a that's a total list of the ones that he's got, and obviously we don't hear all of them. Mm. Um, but it's yeah, it's an interesting question as to whether they think they can do that, and I mean, and their their purpose is to serve, so they don't. It seems like it's taken a long time for them to get to the stage where they're doing anything that isn't just what they're told to do. But then once they get to that point, you're right. Why don't they just change their own chem? Why don't they just say? Well, I'm maybe quick. unless they're specifically instructed to, that's something that they can't do, right? Because if you, if you mm-hmm. if they change one of the other golems' chems, because yeah, you couldn't do your own, right? You'd have to pick someone and be like, stand there, I'm going to hold open your head and we're going to whip that out, change a few things, pop it back Ooh. in. Oh, but then true. that would prevent that golem from being able, being able to fulfill whatever task it's already been given. Mm. So maybe that goes against their Asimov, scare quotes, rules. Yeah. So they have to make someone new to make the decisions someone for them. Who and doesn't who- already have a task. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess we never find out what the inciting incident for the golems is, like what causes them to suddenly go, hey, what if we all meet and we could do something about this? And and we also don't know how they feel about it entirely. Is it the whole thing like golems must have a master and that they do not does not occur to them that their master can be themselves, which is why they mm. create a master? Well, I think that that's it, the receipt is such a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. But like maybe that's why they make someone new to be a benevolent master. Mm. Yeah. It's funny because there's that footnote about how like there's that rumor about people who invent a thing are always killed by that thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was great. <laughs> and like Dorful is, but not really. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I hadn't thought about that. that yeah. Oh, cool. Mm. Yeah. But look, you know, in the investigation of the mystery, they're pretty sure it wasn't him. Um, and I do like that both Carrot and Vimes, well, Vimes finally figures out what he thinks has gone on. Like he finally, because they, they follow the clues. They find that 12 golems met in a the cellar. They, 
They had a big argument, which they know because they wrote all these things on the walls. And it's interesting. They can't even talk to each other without the writing because they mm. don't have a voice. And that's a big thing about them in the book. They, they don't have a voice of their own. Mm. Um, so metaphorical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then after they've had their argument in the cellar, they, they do draw lots with the matchsticks and Dorfel loses. So he turns himself in and, and Vibes suddenly goes, oh, they made a new golem and that's what's killed someone and now they regret it. And this is quite distressing. We're about to talk about suicide, and even though it's in an explicitly fantasy context, it's a topic we take seriously. If you or anyone you know needs help, please check our show notes for some places to contact. It's pretty grim. The other golems who created the new one, most of them killed themselves. Yeah, and horrifically mm. as well. Like, not just, not just in, in uh, sort of gory ways or anything, but in these really desperately upsetting ways yeah smash themselves hammering and hammering and just keep or sawing and just keep sawing until they oh it's it's terrific like her least distressing walks into the sea and you're Mm. like that's pretty bad like they're gonna end up on the bottom of the ocean also that would 100% not kill a goal yeah that's true 100% that dude took the easy way out he's like see you boys (laughs) uh, yeah just um i feel real bad yeah i'm I'm just gonna pop on over here all drowned oh i'll wait a couple of million years pop around just just come out the other end of the sea (laughs) well don't somebody else (gasps) oh what if it walked off the edge oh maybe that's where it's going what it was doing oh oh see there's me laughing about it now i feel but then it wouldn't still wouldn't die that need to breathe yeah it'd just, just be floating around in space forever oh gosh that's and now that, i'm hearing a bowie song that is grim <laughs> <laughs> that's gotten even more grim um yeah, but like in pirates of the caribbean they had that whole thing like you know they threw orlando bloom's character's dad at the bottom of the sea because he'd taken the pirate gold and i remember thinking in the first movie hey he'd just be at the bottom of the sea and then i was right <laughs> that became that became a plot point later. Dude, that's what we thing. that's what we call a humble brag. Liz. Oh, that was just a straight up brag. I, I was correct. I, was right. <laughs> I knew what I was doing. Um, yeah, nice one. Uh, yeah, so I mean, look, this is that's just oh, like it gets me. Uh, I was reading it and just going, this is awful. Mm-hmm. Um, but they feel so bad because they've created life and the life has killed somebody else and they feel responsible because as they say, they keep saying clay of my clay like mm. this is because they mixed part of their own clay into the new golem which I, and it's it's not clear why they did that I, I think i think the it's kind of the obvious answer is they wanted it to feel like it was part of them and it was it was um, I don't know, maybe, it, but it, it, or maybe it was necessary, you know, I don't know. It's like when in Animorphs, the Andalite that is their friend needs to get a human form and it absorbs a little bit of each of their DNA and then it looks like all of them. Mm. That's not like that. I just want to tell you that because uh, it's nice. Okay. Yeah. In a way, it makes, it makes the new golem their child. Yeah. You know, mm. I guess that's of, what parts of your own body, like. And that's weird, isn't it? Because yeah. you're creating a child, but you're also creating a king. And so, again, this is where, you know, the fantasy element of it makes it this weird, unique circumstance mm. that you just couldn't get if it was, like, the equivalent of a real story. I mean, I don't know what the equivalent of a story is in the real world would be. Is it be. kind of like a blood oath in some ways, though, as well? Yeah. It's like, like we, mm. we're Pledging swear. yourself to a cause. So, while all this is happening, why don't we have a bit of a chat about what's going on in the, the plotting background and what's happening with Nobby Nobs and also some of the community leaders? Like, what's... Oh, Yeah. Because the, the guild leaders have their little meeting where they're like, well, what are we going to do if the patrician dies? Mm. We've got to replace him with somebody. And they're like, oh, yeah, but who? And then this is where Mr. Slate, the zombie, speaks up and says, well, perhaps we should have a king. We could control a king. And not only 
could we have a king? There's a king contender in the watch. Mm. Uh, and But then he doesn't say it's Carrot, as we all expect him to say. He's mm. like, it's Nobby. He's like, descended from the Earl of Ankh. It could be him. Which is weird because like, you can't just substitute an earl for a king. Like They talk about how uh, nothing beats an earl. No, nothing a beats a duke except an earl or, mm. or nothing beats an earl except a duke. Um, but and, they don't have any of the others. But like they do, though, don't they? They have dukes and stuff. Like, uh, wouldn't Sybil be closer to the throne? There's not a duke in a more pork. I don't think. Okay. There's dukes in like because there's like Duke Felmet, but he's like a duke of. You know, the ram tops, mm. nobody cares about that in Angmorepork. If you're close enough to the thing. I guess so. Well, I mean, look, you know, they need somebody. And they're like, we're going to mm. use this guy. Uh, and he, they decide that that's a good idea. Meanwhile, Nobby is like inconsolable about this. He's like, this is the worst thing ever. And he goes off to sort of have some drinks and drown his sorrows with Fred in the mended drum. They get very well, they're getting pretty drunk. But also Nobby starts oh. talking about ways that he could maybe use it to his advantage. He says something about, maybe I could come in here, you could rename the place the Earl of Ankh and I'll just come in and drink here all the time. And this really gets up the nose of the other clientele mm. and Fred only gets them out of being pummeled to death by uh, buying everybody a drink, which uses up all the money they've taken from the tin at work. Nobiligus obligay or oh, something? Yeah, they can't, they can't yeah. figure out how to pronounce it. I love that bit. That was so good. <laughs> uh, oh, there are so many Latin things that made me... Just wish I'd studied it. It's cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they end up in the gutter, which is around the time when the mystery golem goes rampaging through the streets again and everybody hears it. They hear it. It like, nearly runs over a group of the beggars, including mm. Fowl Old Ron, who says Millennium Hand and Shrimp for the first time does. in this book. It's not the first time we hear that phrase, but I think it's the first time we hear him say it. Is there a gas boat in this book? I think that it must be gas boat. That's mm. a talking dog. Yeah. yeah. And it's hanging out with Fowl okay. Ron. He's not named. It doesn't meet up with Angura, but mm. I'm pretty sure it has to be him. Yeah. Because yeah. so I, I originally, when earlier on in the book, when Carrot was feeding chops under the table, I assumed it was Gaspard, and I was like, oh, no, it's Angura. Yeah. But yeah. 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 Uh, incidentally, uh, the new golem screams, right? Yeah. Which means that they gave him the, it the ability to do that. Did they do it on purpose? Because he's their think? voice. It's like it's part of the whole metaphorical... Yeah. But he doesn't even speak. He only no. he screams, and it's always described as he's like bellowing like a bull, which mm. is kind of frankly terrifying. Yeah. But is that? Do you think they gave him a voice on purpose? Because they, or they tried to, that. maybe or they tried to, but they didn't do a good job. Mm. Yeah, because it's just he's just an epitome of a lot of their fails. Yeah, or it could be like when you make bad clay in school and it whistles. Well, it's clearly intended oh, that oh. he's gone. Wait, <laughs> I hang on, wait, down that. What do, what does that mean? You know, as in like you know, like if like if you made like a, a crap teapot or something, and like it's got a hole in the wrong spot, so like if it it would make whistles. Oh right, right, yeah. just air escaping <laughs> yeah. sort of thing. Right, right, okay, yeah. Right. As like, <laughs> it's it's like he woke yeah. it up. It was like a, you know, like, like when I was in year three and I accidentally like created life out of clay, yeah. <laughs> and, and it was screaming at scream, and exactly. had to bury it under a mound of lead, and it's still there in Adelaide. You know you, how everyone did that? <laughs> I, I thought this was going to be a very different podcast for a second here. Uh, well, it nearly was. Yeah, uh, no one has haunted nightmares <laughs> screaming, screaming to them from beneath the No, but I think. I feel like I mean, look, we we never get inside the head of our golem, but I think oh, he's got good. haunted nightmares. Mm. Like he's he's not well. Oh, I, I imagine like it's it's every moment I live is agony, sort of yeah. sort of situation. You know, not nice. Although, look, having said that, they kind of do explain why this golem killed the two old men, but it seems a little flimsy. And there's it's a couple vague. of things about mm. the golem's plots that 
seem not quite right. Like, first of all, the connection between the what the golems are doing and what's happening with Vatnari seems it's a little bit flimsy. Like, it's not, well, it's not flimsy. It's it's coincidental. It's, it's opportunistic. Not, yeah, which which is fine. That's fine. It makes sense. But yeah, the whole thing with the two old men being murdered, you're like, well, to cover it up, but. Why would it feel the need to cover that up? I didn't know if it was covering up so much as uh, just the thing went mad, whatever took, that means, revenge. and was taking revenge on its creators that made it. But it didn't kill any of the other golems. What if it didn't want more to be made? Was it? Oh, it wasn't maybe. revenge, but it was like no more of this. Yeah. So we'll kill the. Or people I make- am the only king. Yeah. There can be no more. Mm-hmm. There can be only one. Oh, I don't know. That's tricky. But uh, there, there are definite um, uh, mirrors here, like between the the golems meeting to figure out their king, and yeah, and the guilds meeting to figure out their king, and they're both doing it in very different ways, and then. It turns out that the guilds using the golem version of, of what they're trying to do to help them do what they do. It's all very interwoven, but then still a little bit hand wavy. Yeah. I mean, the reason they thought Carrie was a good candidate is because he's only got golem stuff mm. because he's had to lay off everybody else because the golem works so much that he can't, he doesn't need any other workers. Sorcerer's apprentice vibes. Yeah. Oh, um, very much. And they keep referring to that as a, as a story that people hear about golems. It's like, oh, you know, you they've got that one to dig a trench and he dug it all the way to the sea or they got this one to make pots and he made 5,000 and you're like, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but he's making millions of candles. Like, I think they say, like, he makes half a million candles a day. And I'm like, <laughs> that is, I mean, I know everybody uses candles on the Discworld, but that's still, that's a lot of candles. Only one candle maker, though, as far as I'm aware. Huh. Oh, well, he's, he's cornered the market. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. Right? Cause they do talk about that there are other candles. And like, in fact, Vimes gets his from, or they used to get them from somebody else. Although I wasn't sure about that, whether he buys them from a, a shop, but they're all made by him. Yeah, he's, he's making so many and so cheaply that mm. he's just cornered the market. Um, yeah, because there are some really cheap, dodgy ones. Although it does say that the watch has different ones than he has at home. I think they make them themselves, don't they? They're out of, out of like fat and stuff. Uh, I haven't. No, they do buy them, but they, oh. but Nobby takes them home to use yeah. them as cooking fat, which is, oh, it's the other way around, right? It's gross. Um, but they're not, you know, they're made out of tallow and stuff. They're not, they're not beeswax candles or anything. Like I thought that. like he was making all of them, but there's different types that you can get. And that's why oh, I like veterinary likes number threes or. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, I don't know much about candles to be honest, no. other than it's really fun to stick your hand in a thing of wax and then. Crack, crack it off. <laughs> yeah. I was talking about this the other day to someone. Like, okay. Look, so it seems like my childhood your, was quite different. Your free time is, uh, is your own lookout. But, Making uh, sentient clay and sticking my hand in <laughs> mugs of wax. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Why not? You guys had your computer game and I had. Yeah. <laughs> no, you had a stick. Is that what you. No. I had something that sounded like an eldritch horror. So, yeah. yeah. I, I look, we could probably cut to the chase a bit more. There's, there's Which chase? The well, one across the bridge? or ooh. Well, there are one, several to choose from. Mm. One of the things is that Cheery has a breakthrough. Mm-hmm. She's testing the samples again and does find arsenic in one, but it's not one of the ones from Veterinary's Palace. It's the stuff that was under the fingernails of the priest. And I thought this was so, this was a, such a great development because I'm like, I didn't expect this to happen. And, and I like that in this book... You know, there's no moment where somebody, well, there are a couple of moments where someone says something and it inspires someone to solve the mystery, but it's not like 
a complete non sequitur. Like it, they're talking about something that is actually related. And so I found that really satisfying. And this moment where she's like, oh, no. And she has that doubt in herself. It's like, but that's not even one of the ones we were looking for us, Nick, in. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was great. That section has a couple of my favorite bits. Uh, we re-meet our vampire that keeps getting killed oh, ridiculously. Oh, that's such a great Again, recurring so, gag. Yeah, so this isn't the first time it appears, but uh, I think it's something we might miss if I don't mention it right now because he was yeah. working in the holy water section. Um, <laughs> so oh, he yeah. ended up as a as a pile of dust in a jar with a bow tie on it. Bow tie <laughs> around it. I love how all of the vampires, they all dress like Dracula, but like Dracula from like a 1950s version yeah. of Dracula. <laughs> so they're all in formal wear. It's so good. Oh, oh, the pencil factory in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the other ones? Is the pencil garlic factory? Oh, is it garlic works or something? Yeah. And there's the, the ecclesiastical supplies in the holy water division. <laughs> and this, like, this mystery only takes place over the course of like, it's less than a week. So yeah. he's had all these jobs in like only a few days. <laughs> and you're just like, what is wrong with you? And they're, they're just <laughs> exasperated by him. Can you just not take jobs that are intrinsically dangerous to you? Mm. But I do love as well that he's brought uh, in dust form. Uh, to to the watch by a monk, yeah, so, who's who's looking a little bit stressed and worried, and because he was working at non such ecclesiastical supplies. Oh yeah, um, but so he's obviously a delightful human being because other well vampire because otherwise the monk would have just left him there, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Like, oh, what a jerk. <laughs> yeah, just, and they're like, oh, we'll bring him in. He's probably got the best goss around the the water cooler. Like he seems yeah. like he's worked in lots of places. He probably knows how to fit in straight away. <laughs> That's so, it. Yeah. He's the one who brings in like cake on the first day. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. We never get his name, do we? No. <laughs> Some of these minor characters, you're like, it's fun in your head to go, oh, I wonder if that's the guy who becomes, you know, wait, is that Otto mm. von Schrieck before he becomes, you know, <gasps> a photographer? What's happening? And Because it seems like that's something Otto would do, like yeah. seeing as he likes photography and he's always like turning himself to dust. He finally finds his correct way around it because like trial and error. Mm. Yeah. That would be so cool. This could be, this could be, yeah, mm. I don't know. But it's it's clearly a similar comedic idea. So mm. it could it could come in there somewhere. Um, but yeah, no, is that is a great recurring gag. I love that a lot. But the other thing that happens is Carrot and Angua just happen across some dwarves who are angry that Gimlet has seemingly poisoned them with arsenic in his rats. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, well, we've got to find out this because maybe this is related. And they send Fred and Nobby off to interview the person who supplied the rats, who is we mad Arthur. <laughs> well, it, it turns out, though, that he has been poisoning them with chicken. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. He's been substituting meat yeah. for the rats. It's like Ooh. the reverse of KFC and all those rumors that go around. Uh, yeah, and the horses, yeah. Um, I did actually, I've mentioned KFC. I just want to do a shout out to one of my other favorite podcasts, Kentucky Fried Chatton, if you've not heard this. Um, oh. it's a weird one for me to enjoy being a vegetarian, but they did a whole season where they, all they did was eat everything off the Kentucky Fried Chicken menu Whoa. and talk about it. And it's three comedians who are very funny. So it's, it's worth a listen. Can we, um, contribute money towards their medical bills? Um, I think we <laughs> might need to. Well, look, I don't think they did an episode every day. So hopefully they don't need any it like once a week but they do talk about it as if they eat it all the time so maybe maybe we should okay yeah um i hope you i hope you're looking after yourselves <laughs> chat and crew but yes they so they send them off to go and find we mad arthur who's our, our first first gnome is it first gnome i think so I and think he's mr we mad arthur to you copper <laughs> he's just so scottish yeah i tell me if i'm wrong i thought he was uh knack mac no, um, I think they're different but isn't there, to gnomes. There's that vibe, though, to yeah, him. Yeah, because he's, he's got, got the a similar accent. style. Yeah, that's true. In my head, that's what it is. Like, he's just come a long way from home. Oh, maybe. I mean, 
Yeah. And he's clearly come to the city from somewhere else. Like he mm. talks about that. And he's also like one of the very few gnomes there because nobody understands there's that great sequence talking about this, you know, the economics of scale in his case, which just means like, <laughs> you, you know, he gets, buys all loaf of bread and feeds him for like a month and he can hollow it out and use it as a bedroom. Like <laughs> just, yeah, it's clearly that he's a pioneer. Yeah. But, uh, but they also, I mean, it, it harks back to the thing that's said in this book about Ankh-Morpork, which alone out of all the big city-states is the one that's thrown open its doors mm. and said anybody can come and live here. And it's part of what's made it what it is today. And it's sort of that very explicit multicultural multiculturalism is awesome kind of message that, you know, you got to, you like. I mean, you know, they do also use it to not conquer anyone, but to stop them conquering people. Mm. But yeah. Incidentally, when we meet him, we also meet our good old friend, uh, the Grim Squeaker. Oh, yes. In his one, uh, one appearance, I think. Yeah. yeah. He's only got a brief cameo in this book, but like, yeah. It's we've seen death a little bit earlier, but, um, he gets one squeak away, <laughs> which is good. Yeah. yeah Surprised right. he doesn't get more appearances in this book, really. Do you think the Grim Squeaker will come for Wee Mad Arthur when he dies in the same way he comes for Mr. Pounder in Masquerade? Oh. I reckon they'd have a good fight on their hands, though, like in a yeah. different way. <laughs> He'd definitely give him a good crack on the skull, I reckon, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Will not go well for him. Yeah. And love his him. business card or his, like, ad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it. The spelling. I know. Oh. Mice with an S. <laughs> yeah. Mice. Moles. Wasps. I, although I do think uh, putting the word war in the word wasp is entirely appropriate. Mm-hmm. But I hate wasps. Um, it's because they're mean to bees. They are mean to bees. And they're just, uh, as as my comedy partner, Atlanta, says, they're stabby little jerks. Their only form of defense is attack. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, you're onto something there. Hornets 20p extra. <laughs> what is the, does anyone know the difference between a hornet and a wasp? Uh, That's one for the show notes. Yeah. But yeah, he's great, and he he has this altercation. Also, the the guild of rat catchers come to squash him, and he just beats the crap out of them, which is so good. And he's got that this very Ant Man thing where he's very small, but he's as strong as a human being, which means like he can concentrate all that power. I'd like to see him versus the Assassins Guild, to be honest. Yeah, oh, yeah. So where now, does he draw the line? I don't know. But look, he gives them the info that yeah, I caught those rats, but I look, I don't use poison. Someone else is putting poison down there. I'll find out about it and they'll be in trouble. And so Nobby and, and uh, Colin go off to investigate. It's probably a good time to point out that Fred has got six weeks left until mm. retirement. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I remember writing a note when I read that bit in the book and I just put, oh, no. Because <laughs> that's like, oh, something bad's going to happen to him. He's mm. too old for this shit. He is. <laughs> and he has some serious shit happen to him as well. Because they, they have it. <laughs> I didn't even mean that one. Oh dear! <laughs> but they had they have this conversation on their way as they're figuring out what to do after they've talked to We Mad Arthur. Basically, this is where Nobby is convinced to go to the party because he says, "Oh, I've been invited to this party and I don't want to go. Like, there's all be knobs there." And he's like, "Well, you know, maybe they want to marry you off." And Nobby's like, "Oh." <laughs> so he goes to the party after they split up to door knock in the area where the rats were caught, and Fred almost immediately is kidnapped. And no, nothing bad happens to Nobby. He just goes off to the party and has a great old time. Um, and Nobby at the party is quite a thing. Yeah, he's he's a bit of a um, curiosity to them, right? And mm. they get very excited. And I feel like it was in this bit that I discovered a new word, which made me very happy, describing his face and talking about his various excrescences, <laughs> which I had to look up because it's something I've never come across before, but it's just sort of, Weird, gross growths. Yeah, it's a good <laughs> um, word. It, yeah. it sounds exactly like the thing it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
That's, uh, delightful is not the correct word. No. That's, it's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sure, sure is. <laughs> it sure is. And Nobby like embodies that trope of the like gross oik who goes to the upper class and they all enjoy his jokes and stuff because they're like, we can't believe anyone would behave like this. Mm-hmm. Meat paste sandwiches. Yeah. And yeah. And you know, I, I, I talked about that piece of music that always gets played in every fancy party mm. in films last episode. And I totally imagined that piece of music during this scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like as soon as he opens the door. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so good, but so gross. And I, Nobby's this interesting character. I don't know. How, I'm just interested in what you think about him because I always find that he's actually a very sympathetic character. He's actually, he's not really ever mean to anyone, but they're always alluding to the fact that he's a terrible person. And it's not just based on his looks. Like they talk about how he's always nicking things and he does awful things, but at the same time, he nearly always does that stuff off camera. Mm. And whenever we're with him, he's very much the downtrodden underdog who's not doing anything too terribly bad, really. But also gets out of this whole situation eventually, not because he's figured out that it's wrong or that it's going to be bad or not good for Ank Morpork, but because it might involve him doing something. Mm. Oh, yeah. And also because <laughs> Mr. Vimes will go spare. Yeah, yeah. That's my favorite. Because he'll get in trouble and it involve him actually having to do some sort of Effort. Oh, that's true. Yeah, he's not very community minded. <laughs> well, he's very like, what is best for Nobby? And as close a comparison I can find is, have you watched Kimmy Schmidt? Yes. Yeah. So like Titus is kind of like that. It's like, what's good for Titus? And he's nice and he cares about some things, but ultimately he's like, what is best for Titus? Mm. He's quite selfish or yeah. self. And like, I love Titus so much. He's the best. Oh, he's an amazing character. Yeah. But yeah, he he would still like in a in a Discord situation. I feel like they'd probably have a quite similar trajectory. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Interesting. I, that's that's fair. I had never, I would never have put those two characters together. You know, but now you say it, I'm like, yeah, I get it. There's that quote from Titus that's he gets asked to do something. He's like, but I've already done something today, <laughs> 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 which is just like that. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. That's yeah. very good. Yeah. So he goes to the party. He has a great old time until they take him into the smoking room and say, "We'd like you to be king." At which point he bugs out, like <laughs> jump, like smashing through the window head first. Almost setting fire to the place because he breathes out the brandy while having his cigar. That was so good. And then in a beautifully physics correct manner is shot in the other direction, right? On (laughs) a chair on casters, which actually really took me out of of the world for a second because I was myself sitting on a computer desk chair with casters. (laughs) And I just kind of, it very confused me. Right. They, they have been around for a while. No doubt, no doubt. But in my in my head, like, that wasn't what was in that room, right? Sure, yeah. But it needs to be- It's not what you be, imagine in a smoking room. Right. Hogany chair is like- Yeah. yeah. But yeah. it needs to be for the physical comedy yeah. where, where all of the forces are balanced correctly. Humor trumps everything. Exactly. <laughs> Meanwhile, while Nobby's at the party, Fred is tied up in a warehouse. He doesn't know where he is. Um, he overhears- some people talking about how oh, people are going to, why did you invite this guy in? What have you done? You tied him up. It's going to just send him on his way. Kill him. Send Meshuggah after him. Mm-hmm. And right. th- so that's presumably the golem's name. They kind of reveal that the golem was built by other golems, but Fred doesn't know it's a golem yet. But then when it comes for him, he's able to escape with the help of Mad Wee Arthur, unfortunately into one of the tributaries of the Ank, which is used as a sewer. <laughs> And it's gross. He has a gross time. But he has a very exciting chase sequence where he's, like, you know, being chased by the King Golem. It's frightening. Yeah, and it would be Colin, like this poor Colin. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, he, he's literally up shit creek, right? Yep. Yeah. I love, I love the description of when he fell in 
it was so slow. Like, he, yeah, it was because it's so thick. Oh, gross! And yeah. Disgusting. And normally, people try to breathe, and he was fighting not to breathe. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because that's how putrid it is. Brilliant. And they foreshadowed it nicely in case people had forgotten how gross the ank was when they were looking for clues at one of the murder scenes and to try like there might be a footprint outside of the window. Yeah. Yeah. And then, the, no, no, it's a huge drop down to the, uh, down to the river. And then he's like, well, well actually, <laughs> have a look. It would have oozed back by now. Sure, surely. <laughs> it's like, yeah. so gross. Yeah. Meanwhile, Vimes has discovered that a maid has gone missing after the latest uh, worsening of Vetinari's condition. Mm. And when he finds out that she lives in his old neighbourhood. Um, old, old street. Yeah. He decides he, he'll call in and see what it's all about where he discovers a funeral. And I love that, you know, Pratchett found a nice organic way to put in this glimpse of what Vimes' childhood was like. Mm. Mm. Really fleshes out his character a bit more. But it also gives a real impetus to the plot because, you know, yes, we care about Vetinari and we care about, what else is happening? We kind of care about these two old men, although we never really met them. But when we find out that this poor maid's mother and child have been killed because mm. they've been, you know, incidentally caught up in the plot and exposed to the arsenic, he gets so angry. Mm. And there's a couple of great moments in the book where other people are like, who who even are those people? And mm. someone says, oh, was it anyone important? And one of the, I think Mr. Carrot. Carrie says that to Carrot, yeah, towards yeah. the end. And Carrot's mm. like, well, you know, I always felt sorry for you up until that point. You're lucky Mr. Vibes isn't here. And you're like, yeah, he'd like, you'd be in big trouble. I, I had a moment when he's standing in the street and the funeral procession starts to come out. They describe how they have to squeeze the uh, the coffin through the door. Yeah. Like they have to get out first and kind of mm. like just slide on past it. It's really sad. Yeah. It's incredibly sad. And then the smaller coffin. and With two people carrying it, they're like, but you don't really need two people to carry it. And you're like, oh. And these no. people are so poor but so proud that they might not have any food, but they always had soap. You yeah. know, like, yeah. oh. And it's, it's just short sequence, but it packs so much of a so punch. So much. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, and that just, yeah, makes him redouble his efforts to figure out what's going on. Although also sidetracks him for a little while because he becomes convinced it's food, mm-hmm. uh, which sends him down an alley that is not. But it does eventually lead to him figuring out what it is. And Colin also is like, oh, I've got a clue. Because once he escapes from the sewers, he's like bound up in this string. And he's like, "Why? Well, what kind of factory would have string? I don't know what this is. Uh, I've got to get this clue back to the, the commander. And he's still being chased, though. And he ends up dangling off a roof while the golem's like pursuing him, which is, yeah, it's just a really great visual like action sequence that really works which is a tricky thing to pull off in print it is but it's also an action sequence i've seen in a movie a thousand times before yeah right sure. like like running up the stairs stairs break grabs onto the roof and then oh where's the bad guy he's, he's hanging, hanging on, on to me. Yeah, yeah um and then the drain pipe you yeah know, oh, that yeah. of course was gonna pull off the wall but by using that as sort of the basis then fleshing it out and colouring it more. It was really effective as an action sequence. And, and he's also got that footnote from a different like chase sequence about the lorries always pulling out oh, just in front. Yeah. So it kind of does a nod to like the, the must-haves of a chase sequence. That was yeah. great. And yeah. there's a secret society somewhere organising that. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. Uh, but he eventually, well, he ends up sort of surviving because Carrot has decided he's going to let Dorful go free. And he puts his chem back in his head and he says, off you go. But then realizes that, oh, wait, hang on. It might not be safe out there for a golem because as well as the golems smashing themselves up, 
word has gotten out that something's gone wrong with the golems and that they might have killed some people. And so there are mobs smashing up some other golems as well. And indeed, Dorfel is like threatened by one where he holds up this. I found this really sad. Like he holds up the sign that says, I'm worth $530. Mm, yeah. And they're like, oh, it's always about money with you. And Karen has that great line where he says something like, you know, well, yeah, when money's all you told you're worth, like then that's the only defense you have. And you're like, oh, this is mm. awful. So yeah. A cameo something. spot, Dibbler. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, of course, right. wherever there's a crowd. <laughs> yeah, there's a, we, it sort of gets a lot of side characters in mm. in little very minor ways, but you're always just happy to see them even yeah. if they don't do anything. Yeah. You know, like seeing the Beggar's Guild members was pretty great as well. Mm-hmm. And they don't really do anything for the plot. But it's always just like whenever Dibbler's there, you're like, oh, it's, yeah. it's a nice moment. But it's a, it's a horrible moment for anyone <laughs> yeah, who's buying yeah. from him. But- of course. <laughs> but uh, Dorful goes off back to the place where he's working in the slaughterhouse and they don't want him anymore. And Carrot's like, we can't just give him away. I'll buy him off you. And he's like, oh, great. He was worth $530. He's like, you were going to give him away a second mm. ago and buys him for a dollar, which is where he gets the receipt. And mm. um, he just tries giving it to Dorfel and that doesn't really work. So that's when he pops it in his head. Mm. And Dorfel goes on a bit of a trip, mm. falls over. He has to crawl away and have a think to himself. <laughs> uh, but he gets free will. He belongs to himself now and uh, has this sort of, weird epiphany really like that mm. sort of mystical moment of awareness of the universe and feeling connected to it because now he wasn't a thing owned by other people he's a person properly and then you can basically graph out the joy slash sadness trajectory for him after that because he like goes on this rampage he goes back to the butchery and frees all the animals and he mm. goes around like later on they talk about all the things that oh, yeah. he did and it's all i'm um, kind of but then he later has that conversation, like just jumping ahead about like, well, some of the animals I freed just milled around. Some of them even went back into their pens and it's kind of just sad about free will yeah. and what people will do with it. Yeah. But uh, he, he continues to use his free will because, you know, this is where all the things start coming together at this point. They finally figure out um, what's poisoning veterinary. It's the wicks in his candles that had arsenic put in them. It's a wicked plot. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh no! Um, yeah, well, it was a slow burner. But uh, right uh, I mean, as far as murder plots go, I could wax lyrical about it all day. But. <laughs> oh my word! <laughs> Sorry, Nate. All right, Sorry. let's extinguish this line of conversation <laughs> and just crack on. Keep going. Yeah, all we right. don't want it to turn into. Yeah, we won't. We won't glorify any of the deaths in the book. It's not a snuff film. Uh, um, uh, that's there is a book called Snuff. Let's, let's <laughs> ignore that one. Um, this is a tallowed humor. <laughs> Tallow's humor? Tallow's humor. <laughs> there you go. You got yeah, that. Oh, uh, yeah. that was a good one. I was um, going for shallow, but then I was like, oh, wait, there's, there's, more, there's a better one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they figure that out. And they, that's why the maid's family died because they get given the, the candle ends, um, which they took home. When you say get given. Yeah. No, it's she, perks. It's, the, it's perks. But the yeah. way she describes it is we're allowed the ones in. Yeah, but they're not given them and, and they change them probably a little bit sooner than they need to be changed. She's yeah. very defensive about it because yeah. she knows that it's not quiet on the up and up. Yeah. But it's ethically it's sound. Yeah, but yeah just for sure. And, but, and she gets the good ones. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, which is unfortunately Even more what, heartbreaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh when, when he says, oh, the, the sort that's nice to read by at night and the little fella's gotten mm. sick and so he's staying up so Granny stayed up to oh, look after him. Uh, yeah. Just, Oh, wow. And, you know, that's yeah. what's, it was her kindness that made it work. Oh. Does this make the patrician complicit in that death? Because he's figured it out, but he still he figured it out by that point, down. though? Well, this is a question I wanted to ask because we discovered towards the end of the book that he has been faking it. Like, he's worked it out 
and he's been not burning those candles and he's just been like cutting the bit off and just yeah. burning a bit of the wick at the end. So people think he's been using them. Even earlier than that, though, we get a hint because he says, oh, if he takes any longer, I'm going to have to give him a, like, a clue yeah, or, some, he, or something along those lines. He's figured it out at some mm. point. But is he faking it the whole time so that he can expose the plot or is is he actually taken in and then figures it out? Actually, no, he's definitely affected by it because there's a point where his hair hurts and his... Oh, yeah. You know, everything aches. That does seem real, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, I think it's quite late in the game. He Or oh, he figures it out before anyone else. Yeah. But I think this last bit probably is only taking, what, a couple of days? Yeah. So, he might be... But as in, they've probably been slowly poisoned over a long period of time yeah. as well. Yeah. So, he's, he could be slightly complicit or not at all. Like, there's maybe slight overlap in him knowing, but yeah. it might have been too late. Yeah, okay. And I guess it would make sense. It would take longer for... Yeah, okay. Well, we, yeah, it makes sense. It does make sense. Because he got sick and then it's over a little little while. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. And also, arguably, veterinary would have copped a bigger dose of it than the two of them if they've only got the ends. Yeah, although over a but, longer uh, period of time, because he's, he's not staying up all night mm. the way that the grandmother was. And he's not a little baby, so he's not more susceptible. Mm. It depends on how naturally lit his rooms are anyway. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. He might have lots of candles. Yeah. But anyway, it's not it's not good for anybody, uh, but they know what's going on, so he's going to be safe. Uh, and this leads to the confrontation in the candle factory where Art's like, you'll never take me alive, coppers. And he reveals that, like, you know, they're making these half a million candles a day. Um, oh, and, but it all comes together because, like, Colin's going past on the herd of freed animals that <laughs> saved him from being squashed on the ground. Although this also cures him of his idea that when he retires in six weeks, he's going to buy a farm. Mm-hmm. He's yeah, like, yeah. I don't want to ever go near a farm animal again. <laughs> uh, and so that happens. But also, yeah, there's this great showdown with Arthur Carey who's got a crossbow. And the golem is working there and he sort of reveals that the golem just works nonstop it, until they run out of materials, which is when it goes off mm. and it doesn't have a purpose and it goes a bit mad. And that's when it's wandering through the streets and bellowing in the fog and then it comes back. Which is a bit of a weird thing because, like, how long, how does it know when to go back? I mean, yeah. it, obviously, it does what it's told and they tell it to go after Fred, but, and it doesn't seem to have, well, we know from what happens with Dorful that it doesn't have any compunction about killing other people, unlike most golems, which can't hurt other people. Because mm. Carrot's got that thing where he tests Dorful before he lets him go and he takes off his arm. Like, he t- so no, he takes off his breastplate and then he also takes off, like, his shirt as well. And I'm like, this is just gratuitous, yeah. isn't it? Oh, uh, I'm I mean, into it. I'm okay with <laughs> it. Okay. Come on. Um, that'll be, I mean, it'll, they'll have to put that in the watch at some point. But anyway, he, yeah. and he goes to punch him, but he stops his fist just beforehand. So we know that Dorful can't hurt other people, mm. but the King Golem can. Well, Carrie escapes, goes into an alley and is hiding and they guard both ends of the alley, but then he still dies before, like he's offering to turn as, you know, turn witness. Mm. But he's dead. Someone snapped his neck. And at that point, I'm like, okay, I know who this is. Yeah. Right. This is, which is good. And there's all, because there's also the mystery. Oh, we skipped the bit where Vimes is going to be framed. For yeah. The, for the poisoning of Vetinari because. Oh, of course. He, that was a whole nother problem. He's like, trying yeah. to figure out stuff and he goes into his office and he puts his hand in his desk drawer looking for the alcohol that he knows won't be there, but it is there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and, the good stuff too. And then the guild leaders turn up having been given the. The nod that no, he's going to be drunk and he's got arsenic in his desk, um, and there was because someone's planted it there, but oh. he's not drunk. 
I assumed As- these guild leaders weren't in on the plot. Mm. Yeah. Well, I don't think most of the. I think most of the guild leaders are not. Right. So the ones dodgy that we folk know. who would have been happy for it to work out badly for Vimes. So- it does seem likely Mister Slate's probably in on it. Yeah. But it's not clear. But he's he's the most gung ho one. No, so Dragon's just recruited the people that he needs. The mm. end. I mean, it's possible he hasn't recruited anyone that he's doing this off his own bat. But it does yeah. seem like he would have some conspirators to make it work. And mm. then he's just pulling strings to make other people follow their natural trajectories without being in on the plot. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, but I think certainly most of the guild leaders that we know would not be willingly going along with this. Yeah. Because they're, they're the same people who um, tell, uh, what's his name, in Men at Arms, that they don't want to have a bar of his plot, which is why he has to go off and do it solo. Well, it's like the mirrored evil. Like, they've got, like, the, the like, Golem and his apostles, and you got, like, Dragon and his, like, mirrored evil apostles. Mm. But I don't know. Yeah, of. that's interesting. That's true. Mm. But not quite the same. Like, no, but, but yeah. there's... The, it's a, yeah. As you were saying earlier, there's the, the twin plots of the leader and the things. and Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, they are trying to make a leader too, because right? they've, they've invented this false lineage for Nobby and they're trying to get him this to be This false lineage? No. I'm doing oh. air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm glad you described that for the listeners. I don't know if they can hear it in my voice. They probably could. I mean, actually. our listeners claim they can hear a lot of things in voices, um, as we're going to get to in the question. <laughs> okay. But, um, yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, but we're getting, yeah, we're getting to the pointy end now. Yeah, well, the, uh, the, the whole Vimes misdirect, though, is so good mm. because for a second we all think that he's, oh, no, he's back on the on the drink, mm. right? No, that's the whole point. But he, he's he's gotten 10 steps better and his, his fake arsenic is sugar that he's, yeah. he's picked the cigarette butts out of. Oh, gross. Oh, no. <laughs> so awful. Brilliant. And he's just uh, got some arsenic. He's got that on him. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really good. It's just done really well. Like They cut off just at the moment. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that he pours it on the carpet so that it smells like drink in there yeah. is just, oh, but also gross. And, mm-hmm. But also, what a waste. Then there's that great line about there's all these people who will help you with the alcohol, but there's no like little meetings for a hi, I'm Sam Vimes and I'm a suspicious bastard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't stop being a policeman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, they once Carrie's dead, they're like, well, we've got to figure this out. And he goes to confront, um, get, well, he tries to confront Dragon King of Arms. Meanwhile, though, you've got Chiri and Angua and Carrot fighting off Meshka the, the King Golem. Um, and they would probably, they would all be dead, except that Dorful comes in there and gives them a hand. But it, sm- like, grabs open his head and crunches up his chem and throws it away. So Dorful's like this lifeless husk then. Except he's not for long. He comes back. Just somehow comes back to life without the words still in his head because now they're not just in his head. He's become a real person. He doesn't need them in his head anymore. They're He's in his a real heart. boy. He is. He is in a way. Um, and he li- lives just long enough um, to to help them defeat the golem. Like the Terminator. Yeah. Right? He's 100% the Terminator with the glowing red eyes. Oh, yeah. And, the, and they dim. And he's on the ground grabbing the thing. <laughs> yeah, he's got no the- legs. And- oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and there's a big... Vat of molten something over there. Yeah. Like, it's it's so very much. Then after like, they so remake him and he becomes a watchman, he turns into Robocop. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's got so many different line. robot things coming in together. I know. All of the robots. Yeah. And, and it's good. I, I, I thought, again, this scene was great because you've got uh, Carrot injured, like, you know, Yeah, with the thing through his hand, the, yeah. the silver crossbow bolt that he's saved Angua from. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that was amazing. 
and and Shiri ending up like she comes out because there's that whole thing. I mean, this is again like we talk, we find out more about Carrot's attitude towards dwarven women, which is like oh, you know she shouldn't fight, but you're like you would never say this about any other dwarf mm. when you explicitly don't know their gender. But now that you know Chiri's a woman, you're treating her like you treat human women, but not like you treat Angua, not like you treat other. Well, there aren't any other women in the watch that he knows about. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's such a big contrast, and you're also like, don't be a dick. But at the same time, <laughs> it's very true to life because you know. And I can say this has been true in my own life. You think you got a handle on what's fair and how to treat other people, and that you you understand that you don't mistreat people because of this, because of that, because of that. But you have blind spots where mm. until someone points it out or until you learn you don't realize that oh well i didn't understand i was you know i try to treat everyone equally but i have this blind spot where i don't understand i'm not treating these people equally or i'm treating somebody badly and you have to learn when they're on their way to the confrontation at the candle factory uh he's like saying oh well, you know maybe we should leave Chewie behind like just know how to fight and, and oh yeah speaking like, oh, over her does. head yeah, but then he actually asks her, she says, you know, I don't know how to use any weapons. But then during the thing, she does know how to use weapons. Like every dwarf, she mm. knows how to use an axe and she comes out and like does this amazing sort of pirouetting like attack, but then gets just flung over the vat of Yeah, it's, it's a good day for someone else to die. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's very, it looks, shout out to Klingons everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, yeah, it was pretty great. That was awesome. And then, yeah, Angua saved her later. Um Yes, revealing that she's a werewolf. I love, though, that just kind of skimming over a whole bunch of stuff because last we've seen, are we saying Sherry or Cherry? Well, by this stage, she's changed her name. I'm saying Cherry. I I always said it as Cherry, but it could be Sherry. Sherry, I would have thought. Oh, there's too many options. Uh, Well, well, once Ms. uh, Littlebottom, uh, (laughs) she kind of vanishes for a bit. Corporal Littlebottom. Yeah, there we go. And then then appears uh, hanging on the line of candles and Vime says, how did you get up there? And just in, in a wonderful kind of turn of phrase, I sort of found myself going past, sir. Like, like he just went, nah, I can't be bothered. There we go. Um, yeah, you're just there. Yeah, that was uh, great. So we've got all the action. And then, yes, there's the confrontation with Dragon King of Arms mm. in the, the Herald's building. What a jerk that man is. Yeah. Yeah. He is a jerk. He's a jerky vampire. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't mean he tries to drink blood out of jerky because that would be impossible. Oh, a fool's errand. Yeah. Although, again, a little, little bit hand wavy. So the, the way that we ultimately get Dragon out of the picture, right, is that he's got candles that have had the wicks soaked in holy water. Where did they get the How did they get that? them in? Yeah, I was, I was a bit, I read that and I'm like, that's very clever. Three but pages also- ago, you were very busy. Yeah, you didn't yeah. have time to, to get all this. I mean, it's a... It's not just like, I'll pop down the shop and grab some of those. You've got to get them made. I guess some time could have passed because the immediate threat is dealt with. So it's not like so there's a So while they're fixing Dorful or was, is Dorful not fixed yet? Well, Dorful's fixed. But he only took overnight. Yeah, that's true. He did only take overnight to remake. <laughs> so I don't know. And also there's not anyone making candles like... Also, exactly. <laughs> Our one candle maker's like very much out of business at the moment. And this is this is where Dorful turns rubber copy. He has his great line: "Undead or alive, you're coming with me." Mm-hmm. Yeah, just oh, so good. I love it. Uh, and they do. They bang him up in the cells, but they realise that there's just not enough evidence. He's not gonna. He's gonna go free. He's also too important. He's too influential. But then Vibes is looking around at all the books, going, "Hmm," hmm and clearly sets fire to the place, although yeah. we don't see him do it. I just thought that was, it just seemed such poetic justice. Yeah. Um, but also a bit like awful. Like I'm like, oh, all that history, all that yeah. information. 
Oh no. True, but it, it it is it is the the real punishment though, isn't it, for a for a character who's been alive for centuries and has made this his entire thing, planting the trees of the families and figuring out how it all grows and keeping track of it. It's uh, there couldn't have been a bigger punishment for something that wasn't alive. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I'm just gonna quickly skip past the angry. I was thinking of leaving, but she's not because I I felt like that was a bit of a nothing plot. Yeah. Kind of dull. I actually thought she was going to leave. Like, I, I couldn't remember how that resolved. And then when she doesn't leave at the end, I was a bit like, oh. But, yeah, I, just, I didn't really invest in that throughout. I was like, mm, she's going to stay. And yeah. also don't quite understand the rationale. Like, it, I don't feel like that was built quite as well. So, yeah. Um, and also there's the whole um, Vimes bursting in to a meeting and busting it up with an axe that we don't oh, see. Yes. It happens off camera. Yeah. But yeah. Does he do it while they're there or does he do it? While they're there. So while they're there, for sure. Okay. Because yeah. it's there as a reminder, right? That's why Venari's going to leave it there. Yeah. Conversation piece. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's so, good. I reckon he's terrified everyone and mm. it must remain. And that's in the room of rats, right? Yeah. A hall of rats or whatever. The room of rats. Uh, yeah, chamber of rats Chamber of rats. There we go. Sounds like something from Harry Potter. <laughs> it does. <laughs> but, look, yeah, that, that brings us to the end. We've got a few new members of the watch now. There's that bit where, you know, Vimes insists that they're going to have zombie members yep. because some of the, the upper crust are like, we don't we can't have any undead people. He's like, right, we're getting some, get some zombies in the watch. But no vampires. But no vampires. Yeah. No vampires. <laughs> I don't feel like it's rushed at the end. I feel like there's great pace for the ending. Yeah, yeah. But in contrast to some of the early books where it does really feel like the ending comes a bit out of nowhere, I feel like this one is is well paced. It's just, it's just. Yeah, picks it up. For me, I, I think it's just a lot happens rather That's than, true. rather than it's rushed. It's just like there is, it's, it's very busy. Tiny, a ton of stuff is happening. So it's just hard for me in my, even though I've only just reread it, it's hard for me to quite keep the order chronologically correct in my head. No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Hmm. But as that brings us to the end of the book, I think it's time for us to talk about some of our favorite bits. Hmm. All of mine, sorry, uh, a little bit sciencey, but there's plenty of the stuff here. So oh, there's good stuff in but there. Do you like science? A little bit, yeah. Mm. It's kind kind of my thing. All right. Ish. This is Cheery Little Bottom, as she is still Cheery before mm-hmm. she's renamed. When she's sort of figuring out what's going on, Cheery Little Bottom Linda gets the corridor wall outside her privy and wheezed. It was something alchemists learned to do early in their career. As her tutors had said, there were two signs of a good alchemist, the athletic and the intellectual. A good alchemist of the first sort was someone who could leap over the bench and be on the far side of a safely thick wall in three seconds. And a good alchemist of the second sort was someone who knew exactly when to do this. So that's great, but then... The equipment didn't help. She scrounged what she could from the guild, but... A real alchemical laboratory could be full of the kind of glassware that looked as if it were produced during the Guild of Glassblowers all-comers hiccuping contest. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. That is great. And accurate. There is a great footnote towards the start. Also, science-y. This seems quite relevant to your interests, actually, Nate. Mm -hmm. Because people look down on stuff like geography and meteorology, not only because they're standing on one and being soaked by the other, they don't quite look like real science. And then the footnote says, that is to say, the sort you can use to give something three extra legs and then blow it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I just thought was, that was great. That was also on my list. So you've ticked one of those off. Cool. Well, I've got one, actually. It's when we find out that Colin's planning to buy a farm afterwards. And it goes, Sergeant Colin went back to his desk, surreptitiously opened his drawer and pulled out the book he was reading. It was called Animal Husbandry. He'd been a bit worried about the title. You heard stories about strange folk in the country. 
but it turned out to be nothing more than a book about how cattle and pigs and sheep should breed. Now he was wondering where to get a book that taught them how to read. (laughs) (laughs) That is great, yeah. This is when the Nobby turns up at the party and the footman is like letting him in and deciding he's going to help him out. There might be a time the footman thought, when it paid to hitch your wagon to a star, even if said star was a red dwarf. <laughs> which which is like, it's a very sciencey joke. Like, I think anyone will laugh at that and go, oh, it's a red dwarf. But that means it's a star that is not giving out much heat and is pretty gross and probably near the end of its life cycle. Oh, that makes Red Dwarf the series so much funnier. Oh, there's one bit, actually, one bit we didn't talk about. One thing I thought was quite interesting in the book was that when Vime's sister Carrot, you know, Mrs. Easy, he doesn't know who she is. Yeah. And yet they make a big thing earlier in the book about how he knows everybody. Like, I wasn't quite sure what he was saying there. Like, I, I was like, you know, are, is it is it to emphasize how common these people are and how invisible they are or... I I got something different from it. I got that they were sort of separate from society in a different way, that she was mm. in her house, lives in her house very meagerly um, and probably doesn't have a very large range. And and this street, why would Carrot ever need to go down that street? Everyone's very law-abiding. Mm. True. You know, True. And she'd be in her house anyway, even if he did. Mm. So, yeah. 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 Good point. That was the sense I got. But I mean, maybe I'm, I'm idolizing him too much, but I can't imagine him thinking somebody was so common they weren't worth his time. Mm, it just yeah. doesn't fit into the character for They just haven't all. been in each other's orbits. Yeah, yeah. True. Hmm. Um, I've got a brief one. It's just when Cheery's wearing a skirt for the first time and other dwarf watchmen come up and there there's four of them and the first two are very outraged and they sort of go, oh, I can't believe this and I'm going to tell Vimes and they storm off and then I can see your ankles and that's terrible. And then the third one just sort of hesitates for falling and it's like, nice ankles though and then like runs yeah. off and then the fourth one wants to try her lipstick so like it's kind of a interesting like breakdown of society in like a microcosm yeah but yeah yeah nice way to show that all these dwarves aren't the same mm. yeah i actually had an extra part of my thought earlier about the dwarves and gender wouldn't it be interesting if they started off as some unknown gender and then saw the things that they liked and then split off but then by picking all the different things they like ended up being a nondescript gender yeah. yeah, at the same time, like, and so mixed that it got even more confusing. Yeah. Like, I don't know, that, that was something that kind of scratched the back of my head a little bit. If it carried on, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that, as you know, as, as Cherie or Cherie goes on, she collects more sort of traditionally feminine things yeah. and does mix them in with dwarven sort of mm. stuff, but is not ever transgressive in a way that we would... So as humans, like, is in traditional ideas of in our culture of gender, would not see it as that transgressive, really, except for the fact that she's got a beard. But so what, you know? Mm. It's because she's like the first, the pioneer, so mm. yeah. the path is narrower. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I have one line for you that I absolutely love. The tincture of night began to suffuse the soup of the afternoon. Ah, oh, that's a very good one. It's so oh. good. So that's Vetinari himself coming up with that line, but while he's still a little bit groggy and not And he's quite just like, this is so good. And you're like, <laughs> look, it's pretty good, mate, but mm. it is a beautiful turn of phrase. It's like the thing you jot down at three in the morning, like, this is a thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But better than that. Let's answer some questions from some listeners, Liz. We've got some great ones. What's the first one? So this one is from Lachlan on the Discord. What is on your chem? So let's get super personal from the outset. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. What are the words in our heads? Full on. (laughs) I just feel like there isn't one because isn't that the point? Like that we don't 
but I guess it's like what's your personal values is a way of looking at it or things that you can't, like barriers you can't break past. Is yeah, that kind it's of what hard. a can would be? Yeah, but we, I think as human beings we're constantly rewriting them all the time because from a psychological perspective what we consider good and bad is a very complicated process and this is something that recently we explored in a comedy show, oddly enough, um, Atlanta, who I mentioned earlier, and myself. But one of the things that happens is we form our idea of what's good and bad based on how we're behaving in the moment and we look at our own behavior and justify it. And so it's, it's a complicated process and hard and fast rules are not a big part of human psychology, really. We're always making exceptions for ourselves. So it's really, yeah, that's a really tough question to answer. I feel like it's a wonderful question, but one that I won't be able to come up with a good answer for. Well, we'll think about it. We might tweet it. Mine, I have, I think I've got it's, it's blank, except right down the bottom, there's just an asterisk and it says C universe. And that's it, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> the universe is the footnote. That's my can. There you go. Oh, that's nice. Great. I like it. I like it. It's all encompassing. We had the same question from two different places. So one from Red on Twitter and one from Maddie Preston on Facebook, which was, if you were to have a coat of arms, what would be on it? Oh, that's so good. Now, oh, I, bonus points for bad Latin puns from Red. Well, I know the, the pun that I always tried to work out in Latin or Latation, as it's called in the Discworld, yeah. um, was I wanted to do a, a podcast. I have a website where I was going to talk about games in a humorous way. And I tried to come up with lots of different names for it. The one I really wanted was there's a famous Roman expression, which is, um, I don't know how to pronounce it in Latin, but I'm just going to say it the way I think it's said, which is alea acta est, which means the die is cast. And it was famously said that like, you know, okay, our lot is with fate now. We've done the thing and now we just have to see how it works out. It's said quite often in Asterix comics, which is where I learned it from. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted was a pun that said the die is cursed because I was going to talk about, you know, like how, how games go wrong and how, you know, some games are not good and sometimes you just have bad luck in games. Um, and I tried desperately to find a way to make it work in Latin and it just did not work. Um, so I feel like if there was a way to make that work, maybe that would go on my coat of arms. But then again, I don't think that, <laughs> that games are cursed. So I don't know if that's the message I want to send. Do you have, does anyone have an actual family crest? Because my, the Mackenzies do. I don't, not that I know of, um, but I haven't looked into it, I have to confess. Mm. I feel like I have seen one that was purchased from a uh, market in Perth in the 90s, probably printed on some really cheap paper and put in a really crappy uh, frame of some sort, probably has nothing to do with anything, but you know, just like the explanations of what your name means, just generally, but but a, a crusty style one of those. I feel like it had a hand, but I could be wrong. Oh, yeah. Well, the Mackenzie one is a mountain with a flame on the top and the, I've forgotten the Latin version, but the motto is the light that shines but does not burn. Like a candle. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Have you been poisoning us this entire, entire time? No, is that no. why there's a candle here? <laughs> no, I promise, no. <laughs> uh, but look, in, in heraldic terms, I, I would want, uh, I'd want a cephalopod on there, like maybe a cuttlefish or a squid because mm-hmm. I really like them. Maybe a tortoise as well. I really like tortoises. I feel they signify my interests in weird creatures Mm. i feel like i would end up with one that doesn't at all represent me i would have completely been sold on the weasels because (laughs) they're getting fired if they're not on my coat of arms so um and then i think there'd be a border of weasels like as many as possible to get as many of them employed as possible and in the middle just like an like a hand outstretched 
and then a whole bunch of hangers stretching across it holding coats because that would be a pun or a poon and pay on words because it's an arm of coats. <laughs> that is too good. <laughs> How does she do this? I don't know. I, Liz. I'm in awe every episode. I feel like that would represent me quite well, though, just like that, surrounded <laughs> by like the animal that's going to get fired if I don't put it on my coat of arms. You know what? Though, now, now I want to see a coat of arms for Pratchett, the podcast. I mean, we have, we've got our little banner, wonderfully drawn by George Rex, but I feel like maybe we need a coat of arms. And I don't know what our motto would be or what our, what our words would be, but I'm, I'd be fascinated to know what any listeners think if you've mm. got any ideas. Yeah. We'd love to see them. I, I only know very limited Latin, so I'm not very much there in that arena. Mm. But um, some more questions. This one's from Carl R. Jennings. Would you say that this is Pratchett's response to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, as in man's creation of life isn't inherently bad or solely a godly pursuit, but rather the issue is humanity's capacity for respect for its creation? Well, that's, that's certainly in there, I think. It's part of that bigger tradition we talked about before about robot stories than also golem myths and but it's it's much more about the golems themselves trying mm. to find agency, I think, than the way that humans treat them. I think that's a secondary part of this story. Yeah. Mm. But then the mob scene is is definitely like very. Uh, there's there's elements of that. Yeah. But for but sure. all of this is so tied up. I'm I'm not sure. Like it's certainly not written as Frankenstein in the Discworld. Yeah. But how do you separate it? There's lots of elements of a few things. Like as we had another listener point out that it is very much like iRobot and Asimov's sort of work as well. Yeah. And, and there's the Terminator riffs we talked about and the Robocop, Robocop direct ones. callouts. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so like definitely part of it. It's a good question. Mm. Um, this is not so much a question as a comment from a chew and sneeze, which is just talking about how Terry is always good at misdirection, particularly here. He keeps pointing the reader at veterinary's fingers or food or anywhere else with the actual source of the poison. And I just wanted to acknowledge that, yes, that is very true. Yeah, I love that. That was great. Here's one that I've been thinking about ever since we got it from Dan D. I love this book, but can you chaps spot the glaring continuity error regarding Cheery? It's only a minor thing, but it always stands out to me. I don't know that I did spot that. I did not. And I'm like, what is it? I mean, there was that one bit where the pronouns being used for her were a bit inconsistent, but I'm, I, I mean, that's kind of part of her story, isn't it? So I don't know. I don't know that that's a continuity Is it error. about the weapons, like how she can't use them and then she can? Well, yeah, that, that, yeah. But I mean, I figured maybe she was just scared and then found the courage to use one. I don't know. Is there something alchemists and gold? Mm. I think when we're rereading later, we're going to be like, oh, it's that. But yeah. 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 Look, if you know what it is, tell us. Yeah. <laughs> we did not spot it. The only other thought I had is that it's it's that thing where people talk about how everybody's amazed and surprised that there's a female dwarf showing herself off in a you know traditionally human feminine way when that's already happened in soul music in a girl's school in Quirm and nobody mm-hmm. treats it as weird there. So it's clearly not that weird. There's that possibility. But I don't really see that as a continuity error so much as like they're happening in different places in slightly different times. Um, this one is from Patrick O'Duffy and it ends with this question is probably just for Ben. Um, what is Dorfel's challenge rating? Is he a standard 14 hit dice clay golem or has some kind of template been applied? Look, uh, Depending on the edition of Dungeons and Dragons that you're playing, uh, look, a clay golem is pretty tough. I think realistically, you know, we're not looking at any supernatural characters apart from Angua, who as a werewolf can fight a golem, but not really win. Uh, I think, I think the standard clay golem's pretty good, but he's, 
he's clearly by the end of the book though i think he's more than that i think yes definitely a template they're not really a thing in fifth edition dungeons and dragons thank you for asking that question it just made me very happy um is it all right for us to come back into the room now are you done (laughs) yeah i'm done yeah Yeah. okay the nerdery is over sorry (laughs) um this one's from danforth Uh, is the importing of jewish folklore to discworld more successful slash less problematic than the pan-asian tropes imported for interesting times so and there's an asterisk coming off pan-asian which is putting it civilly so i'm just going to go straight out and say i i don't feel like i'm knowledgeable enough to answer this question so i don't think i have enough knowledge of jewish folklore to be able to put these two things in context well, I would say yes, and I, I know a fair bit about the the sort of folklore from which golems originate, just from, you know, having read about it. It's not my own cultural background, but I think the way that Pratchett uses it is he's, he's in, embedded into fantasy in the same way that all of the other stuff has been embedded in, and there's there's nothing in there where he's combining lots of stuff. Like, there's there's already lots of different versions of the golem myth and the, and the tradition, and you know, he's making his own version of it. And I think in that way, it is not nearly as much of a problem. I I think it's very different kind of thing. Mm. I, I don't know that answer was very articulate, but I, I feel like it's not at all in the same league because it's not as clearly based on real people. It's based on a, a story mm. and law. I get the feeling, and, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, but a lot of the names for the golems felt like, uh, so I said golem, like golem. Uh, Americans say that, and it drives me. Yeah, it's just so precious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Golems. Um, they have names that sound to me like a bad attempt at butchered Hebrew names. Mm, okay. Yeah. Like Dorful. Dorful and Meshuggah. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, are the uh, only real golem names we get in this book. They never really refer to the names of any of the others. I, I don't know if that's problematic, but it, it seems like there's a probably a little bit more uh, Jewish sort of related stuff hiding in there than necessarily appears at first glance. So maybe to somebody who knows that intimately and culturally, but I don't know. Maybe it is a bit more problematic. Mm. But I think I it's the same. I think it's definitely on a very different scale to yeah, yeah. interesting times. Yeah. Um, this one from Tim Newport. What are your favorite guild slash family mottos? Oh, well, I already gave my actual family mottos, but if they mean the ones from the book, yeah. I mean, they're all, they're all good. Um, I, look, I can't go past the Unseen University one, which is, um, uh, Nunki Vides, Nunki, I can't remember the wording, but it's, it translates to now you see them, now you don't. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> which, which I thought is just, oh, it's great. Now you see it, now you don't. Yeah. It's just so good. I want to take glum of. Knit, but I know that's probably going to be problematic for you, Liz. But you can have that. That's okay. Oh, thank you. It's all right. You're the guest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hold it against you. But that's <laughs> What's your second favorite then, Liz? I'm going to go into Round World and not take one from Discord, actually. Because oh. um, at my school, um, apparently, they wanted to take the tartan from a specific thing. So Blackwatch tartan. Mm. And they wanted to also take the motto that went with it. But And this is paraphrased from what they told us at school like over 10 years ago. Apparently their motto as a military clan was something like, touch me and I'll flatten you. <laughs> um, okay. which, which I personally would have loved, but they're like, maybe it's not appropriate for our like school, like, like in the twenties when they built it for, of, of like young women. So, um, they changed it to Cresca Ministrando, which is I grow by serving, which I think is a lot less fun. Oh, mm. yeah. 
I did go briefly to Wesley College in South Perth. So, okay, I got out and uh, their motto- <laughs> You're actually, still there. Well, I liked their motto, <laughs> even though I didn't like the school very much. And their motto was um, Adendo Atik Agendo, which was by doing and by daring, which I thought was, hmm. that's pretty good. For comparison, I went to public schools. Also in Perth, my primary school had a great motto. Yeah. Strive. Not succeed. <laughs> just have a crack. <laughs> Why? That's nice. I should say that's the only time I went to a private school. I feel like I need to establish my non-private school boy credentials. But uh, Wesley College. But uh, <laughs> for three months I was there. <laughs> in there my we whole go. life. Um, but my my high school, my public high school, had one which no longer exists now. They've um, they've uh, demolished it and built a new one. But uh, Ballina High School's motto was Siente Luce or Luke, which I think meant like the light of truth or the light of knowledge or something like that. All uh, of these are so much better than I grow by serving. Yet none better than touch me and I flatten you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is the best. I would like to adopt as my practice. <laughs> <laughs> this one's from Johnny Winter. How do you think the key real world themes, so gender roles, emancipation, etc., are enhanced or detracted from by setting in a fantasy world? So that's a big question. I think we've talked about it a little bit yeah. already. So mm. we might have covered this a little bit. I think, I feel like as you were saying, Nate, that if it was written now, it would take a bit of a different angle and, yeah. and might use that more to its advantage. But I think that one of the things that sci-fi and fantasy always do is that they allow us to think about these things at a remove, which allows us to see them outside ourselves, When, which, which allows you to sort of remove some of the blinkers and the blind spots, like I was talking about earlier, that we have about our own culture and our own experience. So Less think, defensiveness. Yeah. So I think I think there's always an element of that that is beneficial and it's one of the reasons why fantasy and science fiction are so important and useful for social commentary. And it's something that's very big in science fiction, hasn't always been as big in fantasy, but it's one of the reasons why I think for a lot of people, and myself included, Pratchett's fantasy writing always feels a bit more like science fiction mm. because of the that kind of attitude that he brings to it. One thing I, I sort of pick up from, from the times, and you know, I was only little then, so... Excuse me if I'm misremembering, but I I get a feeling that with the whole cheery little bottom sort of story arc, he, he wasn't breaking any ground. He was just sort of reflecting what was already happening, mm. you know, having women stand out as women and still be strong in the 90s, if not necessarily achieved in society, certainly mm. not by a long way, was certainly something that everybody was comfortable at least discussing as a topic. I don't think he was like, you know, paving the way or anything like that. Just sort of giving people an, another view of stuff that was already there. Yeah. And it's in some ways, I mean, the, the gender expression stuff is different, but in some ways it's also rewalking the path that he's already established with anger in men at arms where, mm. you know, there's that constant joke of like, she's the watch's only and then they don't get to complete the word. And we all think it's like, she's the only woman in the watch. Yeah. Which also was at the time. Caro asks, so how does the exploration of gender in this book stand up all these years later? I haven't reread it yet, but I remember it as a book that was trying its best but has the inevitable clumsy moments that a cis male writer of his generation might have. So I feel like we've just discussed that and we also discussed mm. that earlier, but it's a great question. I think it's a fair comment too, yeah. You and Desmond also asked, if you were to become armagerous, how would you style your coat of arms? So we've answered that, but I think it was good to say. Actually, I think I skipped mine mm. and I would like my coat of arms to be on a swivel and sunny on one side, cloudy on the other. And I <laughs> <laughs> Just whip it around as necessary. Spoken like a true weather presenter. You don't want like a blue screen on part of it? (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Yeah, as long as it comes with a clicker so I could just stand in front of it and not actually interact with it perfectly. That's right. (laughs) That would be awesome. So good. 
All right. And so this last question, um, I think it's for you, Nate, specifically. This one's from Des. If the recording is on a Wednesday, which it is, will Nate be wearing a waistcoat? <laughs> I'll be able to hear the difference. Can oh. you? Well, I hope that you di- Maybe you should listen to this. It's too late to say this now before looking at any photographs from the recording because <laughs> then you can tell us if you really could. Uh, okay. So for those of you who don't know me, which is probably a large proportion of people, um, I'm on, I'm on the telly doing weather every morning on the, on ABC News Breakfast. And on Wednesdays, I wear a waistcoat. It's waistcoat Wednesdays. So, um, can you hear it? <laughs> I don't know. Sure can. Sure can. It's a good one. I like that. Yeah. One. It's fancy. Oh, this whole thing. I feel like I should have worn one. So we could have had a double waistcoat, <laughs> waistcoat Wednesday. Thank you so much for joining us, Nate. Thank you for inviting me along. It was a wonderful opportunity to get back into a bit of disc world and, uh, I'm not getting off this train anytime soon. Oh, great. Excellent. Um, and if people want to find you online, where should they look? Uh, I'm Nate at most places uh, with a dot on Instagram in between the Cy and the Nate. Or you can just like watch me on the telly in the morning and, and uh, you know, wake up and get a little bit smarter every day. Nate is my dad's favorite weatherman. Yes. <laughs> that is a good score. Like we've got a pretty good set of weather presenters in this country, I feel. So mm. that's an accolade. Well and done. he watches all of the news, like every news. He watches every news. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. He watches every news. He has eaten all of the news today. Um, <laughs> yes, thank you so much, Nate. Please do check him out on TV. We'd also just like to shout out to our supporters. We've got a few new subscribers, uh, as in people subscribing for money to Pratt Chat to help us make the show who've come on board in recent times. We'd just like to say thank you to all our new and existing supporters. We really appreciate it. You make it possible for us to make this show the way we want to make it and for us to keep going so that hopefully we can, in fact, cover every single book. That is a six-ish year mission and we hope to get to the end of it and we will with your help. So thank you so much. Don't forget, if you have signed up as a subscriber on Possible, that you do get access to our exclusive subscriber-only bonus podcast, The Ook Club. So make sure you you look that up. Um, if you have any troubles getting onto that, do get in touch. We will help you out and make sure you can listen to it. And speaking of crowdfunding, uh, it is important for me to mention that I do other things other than Pratt Chat. And one of the other Splendid Chats productions, Night Terrace, which is currently being broadcast on BBC Radio 4 Extra, we're going to make a third season. Uh, and we will be crowdfunding it. That may have kicked off by the time this episode is out, but if not, it'll be coming up soon. So watch out for news of that at nightterrace.com or you can hit us up on Twitter at Night Terrace or on Facebook as well. But now it's the time of the episode where we tell you what we're reading next. I think probably we should announce the next couple of books, Liz. Yeah, so um, we've got Equal Rights next with Claire Coleman. And then after that, we have Hogfather with Michael Williams. Oh, it's going to be a fun end to the year. And look, this this episode does kind of, mark almost two years for us. It's episode number 24. So yeah. if you've been listening from the start or if you've just found us recently, thank you so much. It's lovely to have you listening. If you want to help other people find the podcast, one of the best ways you can do that is to review us or to give us a rating on whichever podcast platform you use. It really does help people find us and also lets us know that people are listening and enjoying it. We love to hear your feedback. You can also get in touch with us via email or via our website. So thanks for listening. And look, until next time, hopefully our voices will not be the only words in your head. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchat as Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Nate Byrne. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. 
Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag PratChat24. PratChat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.